Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and getting to know the man behind the cost-effectiveness analysis spreadsheet. I'm Rob Whitlin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. It's a little bit crazy that we've never done an interview with the co-founder of GiveWell, Ellie Hassenfeld, but I'm glad we're fixing that with this episode. Many of you will be familiar with the idea behind the charity evaluator GiveWell. Their slogan is, we search for the charities that save or improve lives the most per dollar. But if you haven't paid close attention, you might not realize just how much they've grown and changed in recent years. For a couple of years, they kept the Against Malaria Foundation as their top recommended charity. And for some people, they almost just became synonymous with insecticide-treated bed nets. But they now have research into many more interventions than they did before. And they've been looking at approaches that have weaker evidence behind them, where you don't necessarily expect to be able to prove that they're going to work. And all of that has led them to make grants to dozens of organizations, including Reset Alcohol, Nutrition International, Sightsavers, Alliance for International Medical Action, uh, to name just a handful of those that I'd never heard of myself. This interview is split into two very different parts. The first, more empirical, and the second one, more theoretical. And I want to highlight that because I could see different people being interested in each of them. For the first half of the conversation, Ellie and I go through six interventions and organizations that GiveWell has investigated and made grants to in recent years. And he explains what generalizable lessons they learned in the process of researching them. Those six organizations are Chlorine Dispensers for Safe Water, Syphilis Screening and Treatment in Pregnancy, a program from Evidence Action, Kangaroo Mother Care, which helps premature infants survive, Miracle Feet, which treats uh, the relatively common condition known as clubfoot, the Alliance for International Medical Action, which treats severe malnutrition among children, and Helen Keller International's vitamin A supplementation work. The second half of the conversation uh, switches completely and challenges GiveWell's approach at a higher level. I put to Ellie two different critiques of GiveWell's method of searching for the best charities, two different critiques that I've seen repeated over the years and have some sympathy for. The first is that GiveWell should use increases in subjective well-being as an outcome measure, rather than lives saved or doublings of income. Some people argue that this approach is more theoretically sound and would lead to substantially different and hopefully better recommendations. The second critique is that in the long run, what really helps people escape easily prevented diseases and the suffering that comes with poverty is sustained economic growth, and that therefore GiveWell should focus on recommending organizations that increase economic growth rates in poor countries, and that doing that might look very different from the sorts of global health projects that GiveWell typically looks into and supports. If you'd rather listen to that second half of the interview, you can skip forward to around one hour and 45 minutes into the episode. Or if your podcasting app has chapters, you can skip forward to the chapter called The Subjective Wellbeing Approach in Contrast with GiveWell's Approach. All right, without further ado, I bring you Ellie Hassenfeld. Today, I'm speaking with Ellie Hassenfeld. Ellie is the co-founder and chief executive officer of GiveWell. There, he oversees much of what GiveWell does, but has a particular emphasis on setting strategy. GiveWell, if you don't know, it's, is among the most well-known charity evaluators in the world, and it aims to find high-impact, cost-effective charities backed by evidence and analysis. In 2021, they think that they moved around $600 million to charities that they either recommended to the public or directly uh, made grants to or, or suggested, suggested grants to, to other organizations. Before that, uh, Ellie worked in the hedge fund industry, uh, which he left to co-found GiveWell in 2007, along with Holden Karnofsky. And before that, he was at Columbia University majoring in, of all things, religion. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Ellie. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show, so really excited to be here. 
I hope to talk about a whole host of new charities that you've made grants to over the last few years and whether you should maybe measure the impact of programs in units of subjective well-being. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? Yeah, two big things. Uh, the first is recruiting. We're aiming to grow, give well, both on the research side and across the entire organization so we can do more and do it better. And I'm very focused on that. And then I'm also focused on fundraising. We've found a huge number of outstanding opportunities that we want to direct funding to, and we don't have enough funding to fill all of them. And so we're very focused on trying to increase the amount of money we raise and direct. It's been a couple of years since uh, we last spoke to someone at GiveWell on the show. Yeah, maybe you could uh, give us a little bit of a description of how things have changed over the last couple of years. I think it's been, it's been a period of uh, a lot going on. Yeah, the short story is a period of major growth. So we now are raising approximately $600 million a year. Uh, 60 staff work at GiveWell, and that's enabled us to do much broader grant making. I think in the popular mind, GiveWell is sometimes conceived as top charities or even in the simplest version, just equivalent to the Against Malaria Foundation, which is funny. But we've broadened out a significant amount, directing more than $100 million to non-top charities over the last couple of years, or directing that annually in areas like malnutrition, water, policy-related grants, and research. And so that's been a major expansion in the work we're able to do. Yeah, I guess it seems like people's perceptions of GiveWell might be kind of trailing six or seven years behind. Because I think that long ago, most of the money that you were moving was by recommending things to the public, right? And I guess something like the Against Malaria Foundation was pretty prominent in, in your recommendations. It's just there's a, it's a much bigger operation these days. That's right. I mean, it's still the case that 75% or so of the funds we direct go to top charities. But I think for a long time, GiveWell's list of recommendations stayed fairly static, and that static memory has remained in people's minds. Yeah. So, so how many how many organizations uh, do you think you probably you've made grants to or recommended to the public over the last twelve months? Oh gosh, I would say uh, upwards of twenty, but you'd have to check the website to be sure. Yeah. So uh, I think last year, oh no, no in 2021, uh, I think you moved around 600 million. Do you have a sense of how that's going to change over the, over the next couple of years? I suppose, yeah, because there's kind of been a decrease in, in wealth over the last, uh, since 2021. I suppose the, the picture might be a little bit more, more difficult in the immediate term. Yeah. So 2022, you know, data is still coming in. And one of the things we do to get complete data is we go to the charities we recommend and ask them about donations they received as a direct result of our recommendation. That takes us a few months, and we usually release that data in the summer. But our sense is that 2022 came in right around where 2021 was, which we see as a success given some of the challenges in the financial markets. When we look forward, we have unsurprisingly a wide range of uncertainty about what the future will hold. And I think there's some possibility that over the next few years will grow quite quickly and reach seven, eight, or $900 million a year. And there's also a possibility that growth may stagnate. And we'll be moving about the same amount in the future. We're obviously working very hard to increase that number as much as we can. But with, uh, with the uncertainty in the financial markets, we don't know what the future holds. Yeah. So I suppose you're, you're directing funding to a lot more organizations than you were seven, seven years ago. I guess some, some of my wonder, why actually is it so many different projects and so many different organizations? Because uh, you might think, well, you should find the most cost-effective one or the most cost-effective handful and then just uh, throw as much as you, as, as you can at uh, those ones. What's, what's the reason for spreading out? Yeah, and we agree with that. So, you know, we want to direct marginal dollars to the place where marginal cost effectiveness is highest. And if we believed that there was one organization that would deliver the highest impact per dollar, we would just fund one organization, even if that'd be pretty boring. We're willing to yeah. be boring, I guess. <laughs> the reason we've expanded is that uh, now, if we were to direct the marginal dollar to one of our top charities, we think it would be less cost effective than giving it to some of these other organizations. And just to make that concrete, 
we talk about cost effectiveness in multiples of just giving cash. So just giving someone cash would be 1x. Our current bar is 10x. Uh, if you want to go deeper into what all this means and how it works, it's obviously not quite as simple as that. But our bar is 10x. And so the next dollar beyond what we would otherwise try to fund to our top charities might be 9x or 8x. And we're finding opportunities that are better than that in some of these newer programs. And that's the reason for expansion. Yeah. So so why isn't the, you know, maybe, maybe the first thing that you found, the thing that has the greatest multiple on, on just giving cash, is it that by the time it, you were trying to give them 600 million, uh, basically they've run out of ways to spend that meaningfully or they'd have to, that they wouldn't be able to grow that quickly or maybe they'd have to operate in a country where the thing they're dealing with is less of a problem? Yeah, I think the last one is the most common. So let's just use uh, vitamin A supplementation as an example. So this is delivering vitamin A to young children twice a year to reduce child mortality. There's great evidence for this. Some countries have much higher rates of vitamin A deficiency than others. And so if you deliver it in the first set of countries that have high rates of vitamin A deficiency, this program will be extremely cost effective. But as you go down the list of countries towards countries with lower vitamin A deficiency or lower rates of child mortality or higher costs to deliver the supplements, it's less cost effective. And so it's about uh, there are places where these programs are very cost effective and then other places where, I mean, frankly, there's still amazing programs to support, but we think we can do better at the margin. And so we try to. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, we'll, we'll come to, back to a bunch of those themes uh, throughout the interview. But I guess, uh, yeah, just before we dive in, I wanted to mention for listeners that I think there's kind of three different big ways that this conversation connects to pressing problems and doing good with your career. So the first is that plenty of listeners are trying to do good by giving money in, in high impact ways. Uh, and obviously, that's super relevant because uh, GiveWell is exactly trying to advise people on, on, on how to do that best uh, within a particular area. The second thing is that um, GiveWell is trying to do research to figure out how to do the most good for people, basically people in uh, poverty or people who are suffering in, in the world's poorest countries. And in the process of doing that, it investigates all kinds of different sub-problems related to poverty and many different possible approaches and, and the methods that one might take to reduce those problems. Um, and I think that the practical and methodological lessons that come out of that, uh, all, of, all of that work that you do can obviously be, well, it's obviously very relevant to people who are working on global health and development anywhere else. Uh, but I suspect that they can also be pretty instructive uh, for people who are working on other problems, maybe especially those who are working in areas with very poor feedback and little data that they can collect, uh, who are going to find it hard to learn all that much from, from their own work, uh, because it's just not possible in that case. Actually, the third reason is that GiveWell itself is looking to hire researchers and operation staff and fundraisers and so on, uh, roles which people in the audience might be able to fill. I think well, we'll talk about that at the, at the very end. But actually, yeah, maybe uh, at this point, could you briefly list a couple of the different roles that GiveWell is, is hiring for at the moment? Yeah. And let me just list a couple. And then by the time the show actually airs, there may be new roles because we're aiming to grow quickly. But at a high level, we're looking for senior researchers. And these are the folks who really lead GiveWell's research work across the board, some of them are focused on more technical questions like what should our moral weight be for subjective well-being versus increasing income. Some of them are program officers who are making decisions about which organizations to grant money to and which questions about them we most need to look into. That's on the research side. And then we're also trying to hire folks to support operations. Operations makes give well hum, tries to enable us to do as much as good as possible across the board. One type of project that we want to improve on, but we need more staff to get there, is doing a better job investing some of the assets that GiveWell holds. We aim not to hold a lot of money, but we've grown and we have some some funds and we could do more if we were investing those funds more effectively. Yeah. 
Fantastic. Okay, yeah. Well, as I said, uh, we'll, we'll come back to the, at that at the very end. But uh, for now, let's uh, let's push on to the the body of the conversation, I guess the, the torso of the of the interview, which is about a whole bunch of new nonprofits and interventions that you've been looking into and started supporting in the last few years. I think, yeah, basically, it'd be good to go through maybe six or so of these and um, find out why you ended up directing funding to them after looking into it, and maybe what lessons, maybe what um, what do you call it, transferable lessons or general lessons you learned in the process of investigating them. The first of those that I wanted to bring up because it seems like it's actually quite quite a big deal for you is your funding of evidence actions uh, dispensers for safe water program give wrote an article on that last year titled a major update in our assessment of water quality interventions and there you explain that yeah you looked into dispensers for safe water years ago and decided not to fund it but over 2020 and 2021 you took uh took a second look uh, and changed your mind and ultimately recommended a grant of 65 million dollars to them Let's start at the beginning. What what does dispensers for safe water do? Like, how does the intervention work mechanistically? Yeah, so in many parts of low-income countries, people don't have access to clean water, and drinking unclean water can lead to diarrheal disease, which uh, most importantly leads to death among children under five. This intervention puts a small chlorine dispenser near a water point so that when someone comes to collect water from a spring, a pipe, they quickly push down on the chlorine dispenser into the jerry can that holds the water that puts chlorine into the storage container that they then carry home. And this intervention is potentially much more effective than other attempts at chlorination in the past because the individual collecting water only needs to remember to put chlorine in their container one time right at collection. And also the chlorine remains effective while the water is in the container once they bring it back home. And so it reduces the need Uh, say, for an alternative program, which would require someone to go to the store, purchase chlorine tablets, or get them from a nonprofit, have them at home, and then use them each time they choose to consume water. And that easier behavioral intervention makes it more effective. Yeah. I'm not sure how much I'd um, sanitize my water if I had to, every time I I poured a glass of water, I'd have to stick something in it. (laughs) Sounds sounds super annoying. So that's that's how it works. What's the prima facie or kind of conceptual high-level case for why this wouldn't just be good, but it could could be amazing, one of the best things for you to fund? So it's that unclean water leads to a great deal of mortality in low-income countries. Having a diarrheal disease not only can lead directly to death, but can exacerbate malnutrition, which itself is a risk factor for death from other infectious diseases. So it's a major problem. Then this is a very low technology type of intervention. It's very simple. It's like a plat. I've, I've used it. I've visited this in, in Kenya, and it just requires like pushing down on this thing to deliver chlorine. So it's easy to implement and then easy to monitor and follow up on. It's easy to check. And so you put that all together, it's like a fairly low cost program that has a direct effect on a major public health problem globally. Yeah. So uh, just so I can picture it in my head, people are getting a big bottle of water from a well or from a from a common tap, and then they have to stick a little chlorine tablet in it, or is it kind of a a chlorine spray that they stick in the bottle uh, once they're done? Basically, imagine that the person is carrying a jerry can. So this is like a often a yellow, several gallon container. They're bringing that container up to maybe a pipe or even without a pipe, just a spring that water is flowing from. And then right next to that water point, there's a stand that's maybe two to three foot feet high with a little plastic container that holds, I think, liquid chlorine. And you kind of press down on the pump one time, almost like a soap pump that you'd find in a public bathroom. And out of that pump comes the appropriate amount of chlorine for that jerry can. And so it's just dispensing it directly into the water container. 
Okay, amazing. So, yeah, can you tell us a short version of the story of how uh, Givewell looked into these clean water dispensers many years ago and then ultimately decided not to, not to fund it? Yeah, so a few years ago, we looked at the evidence for the reduction that chlorination would have on diarrheal disease. And there's a fair amount of evidence that demonstrates that chlorination does, in fact, unsurprisingly reduce diarrheal disease and sort of put that through our normal process of trying to understand what that would mean for dispensers for safe water in the field, uh, how often we expected people to use it, how often it might break, et cetera. And we came to the conclusion based on that analysis that Chlorination, this program was not going to be cost-effective enough to be above that bar for funding where we had it at the time. Okay. So so basically just given the cost and given how bad diarrhea was and given what an impact it made on diarrhea, it was good. It just wasn't amazing. It wasn't, wasn't good enough. Yeah. And so I think just to put some numbers on it, our bar historically has often been around 10 times as cost-effective as cash transfers. I think at the time we estimated that this program was in the range of three times as cost-effective as cash transfers. So in the scheme of things, still a very good program, effective, helps people a lot. But we thought at the margin, we would give money elsewhere rather than at the time supporting this program. Okay, yeah. So, so what changed in 2020, 2021? Yeah, so there's two big things that changed. Uh, one on the research side, and then also the amount of funding we were directing changed too. And I'll, I'll talk about how that affected our decision. But on the research side, Michael Kramer, who was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economics, and his colleagues conducted a meta-analysis of the effect of water programs on mortality. And in general, the trials that had been done for chlorination were using mortality as a secondary endpoint. They weren't powered to detect a reduction in mortality only in diarrheal disease, but by pooling the studies together, they were able to find an effect on mortality as a whole. And This meta-analysis showed a significantly larger effect on all-cause mortality than we had estimated based on diarrheal deaths alone. And it, it is really that that makes the biggest difference. We had saw the mechanism of impact as flowing through diarrheal disease, but when you look at all cause mortality and you take into account the likelihood that diarrheal disease leads to mortality that is not specified in uh, the data as diarrhea specifically, um, that caused uh, you know, a pretty big update in our overall estimate of the impact of the program, and we decided to fund it. So, so these, these trials of dispensers for safe water that, that you were aggregating, were these randomized controlled trials where people did or didn't get the dispensers uh, at random, or were they, were they something else, more a more observational style? These were randomized controlled trials of chlorination and chlorination plus programs. And one of the reasons that we selected a subset of the trials that had been included in this meta-analysis conducted by Michael Kramer and colleagues is that we were trying to select the trials that were predominantly just chlorination interventions in similar contexts. Some of the other trials included components related to hand washing, and we discarded those from our analysis because we wanted to be focused on ones that we thought would generalize more to the context dispensers is in. Uh, that said, it's not directly many trials of dispensers itself. So as always, you know, still a fair amount of uncertainty in how the results will translate. Okay, so one thing is uh, you could get a better resolution on the size of the of these effects by pooling together a bunch of different studies that each individually might not have been quite big enough to to tell exactly how large the effect was. If, at least if the effect wasn't wasn't extremely large. But the other odd thing is, so previously you were you were looking at these studies thinking, well, this will reduce diarrheal disease by X percent, and then diarrhea causes this many deaths, so we should expect diarrhea deaths to decline by twenty percent. But then 
these studies looked at death from all causes among children, uh, you know, with and without the chlorine dispensers and found that I think it was reducing the number of deaths by more than the total number of deaths from diarrhea, which suggests that either something's gone wrong uh, or the chlorine dispensers are preventing many deaths that aren't related to actual uh, (laughs) diarrhea, which is a little bit odd. I mean, I feel a little bit suspicious, but um, maybe I just don't understand uh, what the mechanism of operation would be. Yeah, I mean, I think it's somewhat surprising at first glance, but I think it makes a lot of sense. And what's happening is that children who have diarrhea are less able to hold on to essential nutrition and essentially move on that malnutrition spectrum. When children become weaker, they become more susceptible to the whole range of infectious diseases, malaria, pneumonia, um, and others that are prevalent in low-income countries. And so it's not surprising that a program that improves health in general would have some effect on deaths that are not directly described as diarrheal deaths. Um, Another potential, I I think that case is quite strong. Another potential explanation that is similar but slightly different is the data collection that is aiming to allocate deaths to specific causes is imperfect. Uh, You know, we saw some of this in high-income countries with COVID, but we just don't always know. And so uh, a child could have had diarrhea recently Uh, come into a clinic, be suffering from respiratory distress, and that could be categorized as a death from uh, a respiratory infection rather than diarrhea, even though diarrhea in that case is much more clearly a relatively proximate cause of death. Yeah. I'm kind of curious to know whether, like, could these issues be quite widespread in investigations that you and other groups do of other interventions and other programs? So, you know, each individual study of whatever other intervention finds no effect. But then if you added them all together, you'd find that there was a there, there was a large effect. Um, or maybe, you know, they, they focus on, you know, a study on malaria looks at deaths from malaria. But in fact, it's had a much larger effect on, on, on mortality than, than what's apparent because people are attributing deaths incorrectly. Do, do, do you worry about that? Uh, it's definitely something that we're we're very focused on. I mean, for a long time, when we've looked at malaria data, we've focused when we can on all-cause mortality. And of the randomized trials that were done on malaria nets, historically, a large number were on malaria rates, but a number were on all-cause mortality as a whole because of this reason exactly. Uh, I'll say that one of the lessons we took away from this is that back in uh, years ago when we first did this analysis, we insufficiently brought our conclusions to experts outside. And I think had we done that, it's possible that they would have raised this question in 2019 and we would have more quickly updated because we would have realized that we were too narrowly assessing the impact of the intervention. And that is a change we've made with some of the other programs I think we'll talk about in a minute. We've taken our estimates to outsiders and they've helped us see a broader picture of what they might be doing so we can home in on the best possible estimate we can. Yeah. If I recall, there's another thing that uh, Kramer, who was the person who you know did this early aggregation of all of these different uh, studies and and tips you off that maybe you wanted would want to take another look at this. He had access to a bunch of data that wasn't entirely public, or maybe some studies that that hadn't come out yet that allowed him to 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 get a larger sample and and, and notice this. Is that a common problem that studies get done and either the data is not not published yet for a long time, or perhaps you don't have access to the specific numbers that you need from that study in order to aggregate it to to get a clearer picture? I think it is a pretty common issue. And I think that in many cases, when we go deeper on analysis, we're doing that via reaching out to authors and getting underlying data itself so we can understand what's happening. We've done that a number of times historically. Mostly, we're relying on publicly available data because the the costs involved, uh, the time costs really involved in trying to track down that data and get 
more of it are, are high relative to just relying on the data that's already out there. Yeah, yeah. Are there any kind of personal or practical barriers to give well kind of overturning a past finding like this? Um, or, or maybe is it, is it almost the opposite that you're excited to, to have something new to say? Uh, so, so maybe you're almost even biased in favor of it. Yeah, I think it's a positive for us, I'll say. I, I don't think we're, <laughs> we're biased in favor of having something new to say. It's, it's not that we're particularly excited about saying we were wrong in the past. But GiveWell has built up, I mean, honestly, a brand of being transparent, open to mistakes and changing our mind, whether it's about past organizations we recommended or research decisions. And that's so strong that I think we're all somewhat excited about the opportunity to be able to demonstrate publicly that we really hold those values dear. And that's good both for how we communicate with the outside world and how we build our culture internally. And ultimately, I think we've reached the point now where it would be harder to not change our mind than to change our mind because it's so much a part of what you know what we are and what we're trying to do. Yeah, that's that, that's great. I was uh, pottering about in the in the cost effectiveness spreadsheet uh, for this one earlier today, uh, and, and p- people who are interested should definitely go go check it out. It it really reveals the amount of work that goes that goes into this. Um, it's it's very nice. You can see how you've gotten. I think these five studies that passed your various different criteria, and you can see how you aggregated them all uh, into into producing this estimate that it would reduce all-cause uh, child mortality by, by 15%. You've even gone through and you've got the population distribution, the population age distribution for all of the different countries where these dispensers are going out. And then you've placed a value on how bad it is for someone to die at each of these different ages and estimated how, what effect would it have on the mortality. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I'll say one of the things that we'd like to improve a lot on is making that information easier to consume for someone like you and maybe for people like those who are listening to this episode. We ran the this contest last fall called the Change Our Mind Contest, where people looked at our work and tried to find mistakes and they did a great job. But I think people also sometimes struggle to really identify either the most important parameters that if we were wrong would change our decisions the most or understand what we were doing. And I think that's something that we refer to as legibility, Hmm. where we would love to say if, hey, Rob, if you want to spend an hour poking at our spreadsheet, we want to support you in finding the most important places to poke rather than finding yourself down a maze of spreadsheets and Google Docs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think you're doing reasonably, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's challenging to make something uh, totally decipherable to someone who's, who's really working in a different area. Um, is there anything else that you think you could have done differently in the past to maybe get, get the right answer earlier? I think that's the main one. I mean, I think the potential other possibility that we're doing more of now is being quicker to fund additional research in areas that are close to our line or where additional work could lead to a result. And, uh, you know, we provided some support to Michael Kramer and his work on this additional research. But when we see areas now where we think additional funding to support a researcher spending some time collecting some data or running an additional trial could lead us to change our mind, we support it because we want to get that information back as soon as we can to update our views. Yeah. Have you learned anything new in the in the last year or two to give you a sense of what the longer term prospects are for this one? The longer term prospects here are really interesting. So we've been talking about dispensers for safe water. There are Two other programs that relate to clean water that we're very excited about, uh, or I should say excited about exploring. I don't know how much we'll end up supporting them. One is inline chlorination, which is a device that serves people who get their water through pipes. This is often not a pipe that's reaching their household, but pipes that go to a water tank and then they're collecting water from the water tank. A small chlorination device can be put into the water tank to automatically chlorinate the water as it's coming through. And this is an important change because 
Dispensers for Safe Water monitoring shows that only about 50%, 5-0, of the people who live in the communities served have chlorinated water when dispensers does their back checks. So it's very cost-effective at a 50% level. If you can improve it, that's great. The challenge is it's a newer technology and is more complicated, so it's more likely to break. So there's that. And then the final technology, or this is not a technology, but program is vouchers. And the idea here is to give households a coupon to go and get free chlorine at a local store, local market, and then they would use the chlorine in the sort of traditional way in the household to clean their water. The downside of this program is it requires that user behavior, but the benefit is you might think that the people who decide to go to the market and utilize these vouchers are more likely to use the chlorine, and it's also standing on top of existing infrastructure in a country in the private market that's getting chlorine out near to people. And so if it's effective, it can be very cheap. And so our plans in the near future involve continuing to follow and support all of these programs at small levels as we think about which are going to be most cost-effective. And I think the answer will be some are more cost-effective in one context versus another. And then we're fairly likely to support a large randomized controlled trial of these interventions, most likely vouchers, to both understand its impact and get an additional data point on mortality, where we still have a fair amount of uncertainty about our current estimate of how much chlorination reduces child mortality. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Um, is, is the reason, I mean, it seems obviously better if you can just automatically chlorinate the water as, it, as it's coming through, but I suppose technically that's a harder challenge to install that and have it always put out the right amount of chlorine as the water's coming out and to make sure that it's always restocked with, with chlorine. Is, is that the reason not to do it that way, obviously? Yeah, it's more expensive upfront and the technology is newer, so it's not clear that it works in every location. But certainly if you could, uh, holding those two considerations constant, of course, they're very big considerations. I mean, that's the obvious path. Yeah, I would say it's it's unbelievable that only fifty percent of people chlorinate their water when the when the chlorination thing is sitting right there. But I have seen what fraction of people, I guess men in this case, wash their hands in public bathrooms after using the bathroom, <laughs> and fifty percent sounds about right. All right, um, but I think that yeah. I'll just say I think I think that fifty percent number is a good anchor to hold in mind for the challenge of improving lives in low income countries. If you imagine that you have this dispenser, it's right at the water point. It matters, and still, what you're measuring is fifty percent then what you know is this is hard. We have to be focused on getting this right because there are so many ways that it can go wrong. And um, what I think is particularly great about Evidence Action and its work and why we support them is that they're out there collecting that data so we know what that number is because normally you would have no idea and you would just assume, oh, 100%, of course, like, why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, let's push on and talk about a totally different approach to doing good, which is improving screening and uh, treatment for syphilis among among pregnant women in particular. Yeah, in, in 2020, you directed about $4 million to Evidence Action, I guess Evidence Action again, this the same uh, overarching organization, uh, in this case, to provide technical assistance to governments in Liberia, Cameroon, and Zambia, in order to improve how they do screening for syphilis among pregnant women as part of their public healthcare systems. Yeah, can you describe more of the program? Yeah, I'll give this short story here. So pregnant women are often infected with syphilis in low-income countries, and if a child is born to a mother infected with syphilis, this can lead to stillbirth, neonatal death, or birth defects. It's easy to treat syphilis with penicillin, but in many low-income countries, clinicians were not didn't have a diagnostic to test for syphilis. Recently, the World Health Organization approved a new diagnostic that combined an HIV test with a syphilis test, 
And this was very effective because many people are coming during pregnancy to be tested for HIV. So evidence action supported first the government of Liberia in switching over to this dual test. So they had to help them procure the dual test, ensure that the test reached the clinics, train clinicians to utilize them, ensure a supply of penicillin in the clinics, and then develop a monitoring system to know whether or not this was actually happening in practice. We supported the Liberia program several years ago, and then more recently Cameroon and Zambia based on initial positive results from the program there. Okay. So it's really bad for pregnant women to continue to have syphilis uh, during during pregnancy. Uh, it's bad for them, bad for the child. And there was this new test that combines the HIV test that was already being delivered with syphilis. Um, and does, does this combined test not cost more? It's not more difficult to deliver? Basically, you get kind of a, a two for one? That's my understanding. I'm not sure of the exact cost differential, but it's fairly straightforward in that way, as easy to use and roughly the same cost. Yeah. And here the technical assistance was talking directly to hospitals or medical providers uh, in order to convince them to switch over to this combined test? Starts with working with the government and uh, ensuring that the Ministry of Health in Liberia is ready and excited for this support. And then after supporting their work in procuring this new test to, to make sure they get it and can utilize it. And then supporting the whole program along the way. I mean, this is ensuring that this new test is uh, clinicians are trained to use it and know how to use it, ensuring that penicillin is in stock. And so generally it's coming to the government and saying, not only convincing them that this is a good program, but also saying, we can help get you there and we will provide the support to ensure that this program actually goes the way that you ideally want it to. Yeah. Okay, so as you mentioned, you, you compare almost everything to a comparison of just giving people cash. Yeah, how much better than that do you hope this, this program might be? So it varies by context, but you know we see this program as being somewhere between 10 times and 30 times as cost-effective as cash. And the reason why this program is potentially so cost-effective is two parts. Number one, it, it largely relies on what we call technical assistance, which is providing support to the government in its delivery of a program. And so you don't have to, the program is not purchasing the commodities itself. It's not directly paying for distribution. It's ensuring that the existing funds that the government is already spending are going into more cost-effective uses. And then second, we assume that there's a decent probability that eventually the government of Liberia, say, is able to take over this program with significantly less support from any outside funder and we think that this program will uh, you know, be, be more likely than average to go on over the long run uh, owned by the government. Okay. So, so uh, doing the technical assistance thing, just encouraging a country to improve how it provides healthcare, I suppose you get big leverage because you're not having to, to, to pay for all of it. Or in this case, it might not even really be more expensive on an ongoing basis. And you maybe only have to support them in doing the switch temporarily. And then, and then you, uh, you get to have the gains for, for many, many years after that. Is it surprising at all that um, you know, a country needs external people to come in and tell them to do something like this, which seems like, from one point of view, it's like very obvious that they should make this switch and it's not involving anything that's particularly uh, high tech. You might expect that perhaps hospitals just review and improve their, their practices automatically without people coming in from overseas to do this. So I don't think it's that surprising to me. I think there's many steps in the chain that all have to go right for this to work. Someone has to decide to procure this new test. They need to go out and do it. Then they need to ensure that everyone across the entire country is trained to utilize the new test. There's an additional step of ensuring that this drug that otherwise would maybe not be in stock is in stock. And when I think about that, I guess I try to 
look at it in the examples that are closest to me. So I think about GiveWell as a very small institution that is nowhere near the size of the government of Liberia or the Ministry of Health of Liberia. And there's so many times when someone has an idea that is prima facie good, but is hard to execute on because it's hard to move through all the steps that have to happen to make it take place. But when someone shows up and says, not only is this a good idea, but I'll ensure that all the steps happen to get it to the finish line and you have confidence in that person, um, this is now thinking of the give all context, that's a very easy decision to make. And so I think in that context, it actually makes a lot of sense to me. And I think this whole area that we call technical assistance is essentially a policy-oriented intervention offers high leverage and I think fairly high potential success. Yeah. Okay, then uh, I suppose I can almost flip it around and say, well, if we think at a high level that technical assistance could be really highly leveraged and there's maybe like many ways that medical treatment in uh, poor countries and indeed probably rich countries as well could be much, much better and maybe not even more expensive ultimately, then that creates a big search space where you could you could look at all of these different countries and all of their different practices and see kind of what's, what's the biggest blunder, the biggest unforced error that someone's making that where technical assistance could uh, pack a big punch. Is, is that something that, that you or other people have, have done? It's definitely something we're thinking about. I mean, we see technical assistance or policy as a very high leverage point, And so we want to understand it. There are big constraints on the other side. It's not enough to see something that would be good. It also has to be something that the institution on the other side, whether it's the government or whoever else, will be excited to action. And there could be you know, other reasons why it's hard to make policy change. I think we often can relate to this most easily when we think about our local communities or countries where we know policy change is hard, even when ideas seem obviously good. And so we are searching in that space. And I think the types of things we're finding are either like syphilis, meaning highly, highly sort of technocratic and boring, clear wins to improve people's lives, or sometimes they're driven by government priorities where the government says, this is something that we care about. And then the, um, you know, it's usually not give well, to be honest, it's the Groups that we support who have these conversations with government can come to us and say, we have an opportunity to make a big difference here. We'd like your support in making that happen. Yeah. So this is uh, maybe one of your earlier technical uh, assistance grants. Do, do you think you're going to learn um, much about the, the mechanism here by seeing whether, say, you know, you do get uptake in the change? Um, or are, are, will we learn anything else from, from making the grant? I think we're going to learn a ton. Uh, you know, when we were going through this investigation, and I think it was three years ago that we were kind of in the early stages, we were wondering and had no real decent estimate of the likelihood of success for so many lines in the chain of logic for this to be effective. Would the Liberian government decide to go along with this? Would they want to do this or would they just say no? And that was a possibility. Would they eventually procure these tests, even if they said they would? And then would we get decent evidence that people were using them? And so a lot of what we've seen so far in this case is generally positive results. Uh, obviously, like some that are are not happy to go into you know details if you want, but it just helps give us better grounding in how likely it is that something will happen. And I think that will enable us to keep moving forward with more realistic forecasts of what's going to take place. Yeah. 
So I think this is something you, you often see in your grant pages is that you're hoping to, you know, learn about a program or, or learn um, about a general area by, by making a grant in it and then seeing how it goes. But so, something that's a little bit surprising about that is, is you might think that, you know, in the world as a whole, probably there's been many grants made to technical assistance programs that kind of look like this. And you might think, well, you could learn from possibly dozens of those that you could, you know, f- find out about them through the grapevine or, or, or in published papers. Um, and then having done that, just learning about this one extra one that you happen to fund might kind of be a drop in the drop in the bucket of all of the evidence out there. What would you make of that? I think it's a really good question. So I'll, I'll give you my answer, but I, I think it's a really good question and I'm not sure we've done enough on it, maybe is the short answer. The instinctive answer I have is that it has been extremely hard and harder than I would have expected to learn about success from cases that were funded by others that happened outside of us. Uh, that's I can think of a lot of, I'll just give one example. Uh, Way back when, Kivwell supported an organization called Village Reach. And if you want to read about them, they're on our website. We were very highly supportive of them in 2009, 2010, 2011. I donated to Village Reach back in 2009, 2010. I think that's right right when we first met. I think our our first conversation might have been about Village Reach, which is amazing. Yeah, I I think that's right. Yeah. And one of the things that we tried to figure out, we were not the original supporter of Village Reach. We were relying on evidence from its work in 2006, 2007, 2008 that had been funded by others. And at one point, and I think we wrote about this on our blog, we tried to figure out whether the Village Reach was an organization that provided logistic support for immunizations. And they had decent evidence that they had increased immunization uptake in the places they served. And so we supported them on that basis. And we tried to go back and understand what was the cause of the increase in immunization in Cabo Delgado province in Mozambique. And even though that program had only happened two or three years before, it was incredibly challenging to figure out what had happened. And I still think we don't really know. Um, I think another place you see this is open philanthropy had funded some work on history of philanthropy. And that was something that I was pretty involved in way back when, I guess, when Givewell and Open Philanthropy were combined. I think we got some decent perspectives on how different philanthropic programs have gone and had an idea of what happened. But when I think about a case like the Clinton Health Access Initiative's impact on lowering HIV drugs, HIV drug prices fell precipitously from the time they were developed until, you know, a few years later when they started being distributed widely. And it was hard to really home in on what exactly happened and what, how much did they contribute to that reduction. And we found it a lot easier to understand a situation when we were there from start to finish, because we have a better understanding of what's there and what's not there. All that said, I I do think this is like a reasonable critique. And I think it is very possible that with the resources and staffing we have today, we could put more time and energy into it and probably learn more from other cases. Yeah. I guess speaking of resourcing, what's kind of the a number of person years that goes into making a grant like this one? And maybe also, uh, you know, how many person years might go into making the, the much bigger grant, the, the $65 million grant to the, to, to the water chlorination one? Yeah. So it's, it's really hard to say. I mean, just for the water chlorination one, very, very roughly, I would say it's starting on the basis of all the work we had done previously to water. So let's start the clock in 2021. And that included previous review of research and a site visit to dispenser for safe water, probably six months full-time equivalent to get to where we were. And then we continue working on it. Um, Something like syphilis was probably also a lot because it was the first time that we did something like that. And whenever we're looking at something like technical assistance for the first time, or it's early, we tend to look at it more carefully. 
I'll just make up a number and say maybe today that would be closer to one to one and a half months of full-time equivalent work to get to the point of being comfortable making a, I don't know, a 10 to $15 million grant in a relatively new area, but one where we have a decent grounding in the key parameters that we're going to need to think through about how the program has impact. Yeah, that, that's a lot less than I was expecting. Um, maybe it's something going on that you also spend time looking at water quality interventions in general before you look at that specific program or is this this is all in this is this is a both looking at the intervention and coming up with the cost effectiveness thing and and looking at evidence action in particular yeah i mean so it's it's all in it starts in 2021 so there's a lot of work that it's building on top of if you counted that maybe you'd get up double or triple that but still that's you know one to one and a half full-time equivalent it definitely helps that it's evidence action because they're a partner we've worked with for a very long time and it's very easy for us to communicate with them and by that i mean if we ask a question we get a very clear answer, positive or negative, and that is uh, sort of a 90th percentile outcome for communication, so it does make it easier. But there's a lot that we're doing to explore the wider space. To um, We do a lot of investigations that don't end up leading to grants, uh, but we expect in a given year we might do, I don't know, 60 total grant investigations, of which half result in grants, and then we're aiming to write about everything we've done publicly so we can be critiqued and, you know, all together, that takes a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, if I recall, you said uh, the headcount for GiveWell is now about 60 or something like that. Uh, what, what fraction of those folks are working on, on, on research, broadly speaking? Yeah, so I'd say it's roughly 35 people on research, uh, 15 or so people on outreach, which is raising funds for our recommendations, and then the remainder on general operations. Yeah. Okay. So if, if, if you're moving, if you've got about 35 researchers and $600 million uh, in, in money directed each year, then I mean, you can just do the ratio that I suppose a year a year of a researcher moves something like $20 million uh, as, a, as a ballpark uh, in terms of, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just quite a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I might be stressed out if I was a GiveWell researcher <laughs> thinking about that. Well, but, uh, I, I do think our team is smaller than it should be given the amount we're moving. And that's both because of that figure that you gave, but also I think we would like to do a better job engaging more with the outside world and getting more critique, thinking through critiques, bringing things to others. And I think that requires a larger team than we have. Our, uh, our funding went up faster than we were able to grow the team and we're aiming to catch up. Yeah. Okay, yeah, just uh, just coming back to the uh, to, to the syphilis technical assistance uh, program. I suppose many people will associate GiveWell with you know recommending things that are just proven to work, extremely firm, uh, strong evidence, you know, uh, randomized trials and and so on. In in this case, of course, you kind of just have to form an estimate of how likely it is that this program is going to cause an uptake of this new test, and you know what fraction of people in Liberia are actually going to end up using it, and how long they might. It's 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 quite a bit more speculative. Um, how do you how do you handle that? So mostly it's handled in first conversation with the organization that we're supporting, in this case, Evidence Action, and then debate internally. And so, and all of that just leaves us with an estimate that ultimately we know we're very likely to update from as we learn more about what happens. And so we're just aiming to, you know, honestly do our best with the understanding that it's far from perfect. And the way we think about it is this is a uh, you know, our first grant here was roughly $5 million. That's about 1% of the portfolio that we're giving each year. And it's worth making some bets that we're highly uncertain about for the sake of learning more over time that they could be really effective. 
Yeah, I suppose uh, I painted this picture of GiveWell as being focused, you know, only on the best randomized controlled trials and so on. But I think that kind of has always been a misunderstanding, or at least has been a misunderstanding for uh, a long time. And maybe you're, you're you're quite a bit more comfortable with risk and you know uh, estimating probabilities and putting and doing expected value calculations than than, than people appreciate. We're certainly aiming to do that. You know, meaning, well, let me say two things. I mean, first, there is a large portion of our donor community that really wants high confidence interventions. And I think as an example, as we've been clearer with people about the nature of the case that we make for deworming, which is there is an exceptionally strong randomized trial behind it, but the results are weird and we don't have high confidence that that study would replicate today. Therefore, we see it as a risky bet. As we've said that, we've seen some people move away from deworming to support other things because there's a group, there's this contingent in our community that says, we want those high confidence options. And so we want to continue to offer them those high confidence option. And those are essentially the give well top charities. We think about them as the, the blue chips or something to use a finance analogy. <laughs> yeah. And then there's also a large contingent in our donor community that wants give well to use its judgment to try to offer the opportunities that maximize expected value um, you know, even in that world, we're, we're definitely further on the spectrum of let's really understand this. Let's give to things we're excited about. We're we're not taking a explicit hits based giving approach, but there's a lot that we're doing that is from that expected value framework, and I think that serves another portion of our donor community. And and you know, I think both what they want and what I should say importantly, we believe is one of the best ways to give. I think one of the most important parts of this for me and my temperament is that mostly. We're in a position to follow along and learn in, uh, I guess, short order in the world of philanthropy, long order in other places. But over the course of several years, we learn what we are right and wrong about and use that to update and make better decisions going forward. Okay, let's push on and talk about um, another technical assistance program, uh, which is going to have some some similar elements to it, and that is uh, Kangaroo Mothercare. Yeah, you funded researchers from a small nonprofit uh, called the Research Institute for Compassionate Economics to work on uh, encouraging uptake of kangaroo mothercare uh, in a hospital in uh, Uttar Pradesh state in India. Yeah, can you describe the, the intervention here? Yeah, and so I would describe this program as closer to direct delivery, like really supporting the implementation of the program itself. And so the way that this works is we supported RICE. They support a small local NGO. And this local NGO pays for nurses to deliver kangaroo mother care. What is kangaroo mother care? It's encouraging mothers of newborn infants who are low birth weight. Uh, Low birth weight infants are at high risk of mortality in their first month of life, 15 to 30%, uh, say, mortality risk. So encouraging those mothers to hold those newborn babies close, do skin-to-skin contact, and initiate early breastfeeding. So this program has seen significant 20 to 30% reduction in neonatal mortality as a result of the program. And uh, this organization that we're supporting is directly supporting the implementation of this program in hospitals in the state via paying for dedicated staff that will be there to train caregivers, meaning mostly uh, mothers of newborns to initiate this program, and then also paying the hospital to allocate space so that mothers have a place to be over these first few days after their child is born so they can um, they can do this program. So th- that's, that's the basics of the program. 
Yeah. Okay, so the issue is um, maybe for all babies, it's good for their growth and for their, their health and their survival to potentially have very like as, as much skin-to-skin contact with uh, their mother or, or, or their father as well, I guess, to, to maintain. Uh, probably, probably good for them in all kinds of ways. But I suppose it's particularly important for premature babies or, or low birth weight babies, uh, in part, I guess, because I think it's particularly difficult for them to maintain a, a good body temperature. They, they need to, um, the skin-to-skin contact uh, keeps them warm. So doing this program of lots of, extended skin-to-skin contact and, and early breastfeeding reduces mortality among uh, low birth weight infants by about 15 to 30%. And I think that was compared to uh, play- hospitals where they have facilities for treating low birth weight uh, babies. They actually have alternatives uh, other than, than this kangaroo mother care program. Uh, whereas I, I think in some hospitals in, in particularly poor locations, in fact, the, the alternative is nothing because they just don't have the facilities. Is, is that right? Yeah. So this program, kangaroo mother care, demonstrated a significant effect when compared to um, in hospitals in low-resource settings that did have a neonatal intensive care unit with a warmer to support the infant, I imagine that that would be very different than you know the hospitals where my children were born in the Bay Area. So it's not at that level, but um, in when comparing kangaroo mother care to hospitals with those facilities, kangaroo mother care showed this significant reduction in child mortality. Yeah. Okay, yeah, what, what's, the, what's the prima facie case for this one being not just good, but, but amazing? Yeah, so basically it's that new low birth weight infants need to be kept warm. This keeps them warm. The instruction is to hold the children close to the mother's body or the, the parent's body for eight hours a day for several days. So it's you know very time intensive. It keeps the babies warmer and also provides them comfort. And then an early initiation of breastfeeding where breastfeeding is um, some evidence reduces mortality, especially in low resource settings. And so this program has this this large effect, and it's not a high-tech solution. So this is something that if hospitals can be convinced to do it, it is doable often in existing settings. Yeah. I guess it raises the question of why this isn't already standard standard practice. If this is the best that you can do for for helping out these uh, these babies, and it doesn't really require any particular resources other than, I suppose, you know, people who would support the mothers that you might have anyway, and I suppose uh, rooms for, for for parents to be in with their, with their children at the hospital, or possibly they could be instructed in how to do it at home. Why, why isn't this uh, already already just how things are done? So I think I think there's two big reasons. I mean, first the actual lever for change is training hospital staff and there's high turnover among hospital staff. And so one, you know, if you train one person, but then they leave their job and then, you know, immediately after that doesn't help implement the program. And so a big difference that this RICE initiated intervention has is that they're paying full-time staff to be there consistently over time. And then second, often hospitals just don't have space for people and space is expensive. And so the other way that this program is having an impact is by ensuring that that space is created. You know, I, I do think looking both at this and syphilis, from an outsider's perspective, you might say, this seems obvious. Why isn't it already happening? Um, but again, I imagine the hospital administrator who has to make a lot of change in how they operate their organization. And often that's something that, uh, you know, it's just hard for institutions to make that kind of change. Yeah, so it's the potentially run off their feet, and so they don't have time to step back and think, well, how should we how should we change these practices? What it sounds like the evidence for this being good is 
very strong. And you might think, well, maybe what we should do here is, you know, go to the Minister of Health for this state or, you know, maybe for India as a whole and get them to kind of champion this and say, you know, really, hospitals, you, you really ought to be doing this. This is, a, this is very cheap. It's going to save, a, save an awful lot of lives. Uh, and rather than kind of go hospital by, by hospital, maybe you can do something a bit, a bit more centrally. Is that possible or is it just, just not how, how things work? I think it's possible. I mean, we spent, um, you know, we initially did our research on this several years ago and then talked to some organizations and didn't feel very optimistic based on what we were hearing about how likely they were to work. And so we were excited when uh, Rice came to us because it was a very dedicated model that was focused on solving some of these implementation challenges that seem so key. Also, I, I think you're right. I think that often there are a lot of different pathways through which philanthropy can have impact. And, uh, you know, I think we're, we're excited to keep exploring ways that this program could be scaled up further, you know, either sort of top down, as you're describing, or maybe bottoms up with Rice being able to uh, direct other larger organizations about how they can bring this to a wider scale. Uh, I, I do think one big difference is this program does end up being fairly expensive on a uh, per person reached basis. So I think our sort of like rough estimate is this is $400 per low birth weight infant reached with kangaroo mother care. And that ends up being pretty cost effective because the reduction in mortality and the mortality rate are fairly high. But it's not hard to understand why it would be difficult for, say, the state of Uttar Pradesh, even never mind an even lower income location, to have the resources available to just implement this program. And I think this is something that I remember you talked about with Karen Levy when she was on the show, and I, I thought it was like very, very telling that when the challenge is funding, funding is scarce in low-resource settings, obviously. And so one of the major levers for change that outsiders have is to provide funding where needed for very effective programs. Yeah. One aspect of this and maybe many other technical assistance programs might be that in as much as something isn't already being done and perhaps there's some resistance to changing practices, you might worry that perhaps that you're missing something, that maybe the hospital staff know something that you don't. Uh, and perhaps there's a reason why this advice isn't as as good or, or maybe, you know, doing kangaroo mother care is going to create other problems for the hospital. It's actually more difficult than what you're appreciating. Uh, is this something that you that you look into? Yeah, we both look into it and worry about. So a couple of things, like on this case specifically, the fact that we're supporting an organization that is very small and very focused, I think mitigates this concern to some extent, though not completely. Meaning Rice is very focused on a small part of this state, and that enables them to be more aware of what's happening. This is not, you know, GiveWell running a global program to roll out kangaroo mother care all over the world. And they're supporting a, a local NGO whose acronym is PHI to do this. So it's supporting groups that are fairly close to the ground, number one. And then number two, everything we do, we're aiming to talk to people who have local context about the program that we're supporting to just ask them what we're missing. So that could mean like a district health commissioner in a state of Nigeria about a program that we're considering sort of to get feedback and hear from them about what we might be missing. All that said, you know, I think obviously we could do more and I think we probably should as we increase the size of our staff, we will do more. Because if there's probably one story about how development has failed most egregiously historically, it's being insufficiently attentive to what people on the ground know. We're very aware of that. And so, um, you know, while we've done the things we've done to mitigate it as much as we can, I think we could also do a lot more. And it probably would lead us to find things that would be surprising. Yeah. I guess in this case, maybe it's not... Uh 
not quite as severe a concern because it doesn't sound like there are people who kind of disagree with this advice or uh, or you know refusing to do it uh, for some reason. It's more just that people aren't super paying attention to this. But I guess it would uh, it will be more of a red flag if you're if you're you know advocating for some change that other people were were, were opposed to. Something that's a little bit odd about the whole way that this is being done is that you kind of got an organization looking at one aspect of medical practice, you know, in, in one hospital at a time. In a sense, it feels surprisingly piecemeal. And you might think, well, you know, hospitals that are dealing with all kinds of different patients and all kinds of different uh, medical uh, problems and offering you know, many different ways of curing them. And presumably that, you know, have, they have some kind of guidebook about how they would do this. Or so people are taught to do things a particular way in, in a medical school and then, then they implement that. It feels like maybe there should be some, some more holistic thing where someone goes to the hospital and tries to update them on a whole lot of different practices uh, simultaneously rather than just uh, uh, looking at one that's particularly salient to them, given that there could be so many areas for for improvement. What, what do you think? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's two things I want to say about it. First, I do think that often the way that this is going to be a very general answer to the sort of high level question of of sort of you know, why so much bottoms up and not more top down? Often the way that solutions come about is that people experience like a very particular pain point in a location that they are and they aim to fix it. To use uh, GiveWell as an example, Holden and I wanted to give to charity. We were really frustrated by what we could find. That leads to GiveWell. And I think that is just often how solutions come about, that you just have individuals noticing problems and then aiming to fix them. I think the criticism of it might be something more that Give well institutionally has been an organization historically where we mostly are responding to people coming to us with ideas rather than being out there pushing particular ideas on individuals, organizations, whomever. That is a lot going for it. But I also think that in a case like this, you know, we we could probably do better saying noticing this as a possible path offering it to people and seeing if someone wants to take it up. You know, could you go and identify, say, the three most obvious procurement changes that low-income country governments should make or the three most obvious hospital-based changes that should be made? That would take someone some work to do, but I think it's a pretty good idea. And it's not surprising to me based on how GiveWell has historically been set up that we haven't, you know, done more of that. Yeah. Do you have any sense of yeah how, how many multiples of giving cash uh, this program might might look like? So our central estimate is uh, thirteen times as cost effective as cash. That number is way too specific. I mean, we don't we don't really know. <laughs> you could call it ten to fifteen, but like everything else, I think we're going to uh, learn a lot. This was a roughly I think a two million dollar grant. We'll get some data on uh, folks reached. Uh, the organization is doing a sort of a baseline survey of mortality and then going to track their own effect on mortality, not a randomized trial, but sort of a pre-post study. And so we'll know some more and hopefully we can triangulate that number and you know learn more about where it actually is over time. Yeah. We maybe should have said uh, something earlier about oh, to, to help people understand these multiples of cash a little bit better. So yeah, you, I guess you have this kind of baseline program, which is just find people who are very poor and give them give them $100 or give the household, I think, a, a year's uh, income or something like that and cash for them to spend on whatever, whatever you want. And that's kind of become this this baseline against which you compare all, all other programs. Uh, and I suppose, depending on how, uh, you know, how good are the opportunities that you're finding and how much money you're moving, the kind of the, the multiple, the, what do you call it, the threshold above which you fund something uh, has gone up and up and down a bit over time i think at the moment it's something like uh if something is better than six or seven x giving cash then uh you're interested in in making a grant if it's below that typically you won't is is, is that roughly right 
So everything you said was correct, except the threshold is different. So our current threshold is 10 times as cost-effective as cash. The reason this has moved around a fair amount is that back in, let's say, the fall of 2021, when uh, financial markets and cryptocurrency were doing extremely well, our range of future projections for funds raised were fairly high. And so we said, in order to keep up with what we are that that for forecast demand for our research, we expect that our bar will be in that six or seven X range. The funds we have actually raised have stayed, you know, fairly flat, but certainly our like future forecasts have fallen relative to what they were several years ago. That's caused us to increase the threshold up to 10. Uh, I, I do want to say like two things about this and then happy to go into them if you want, but we don't need to. The first is we talk about these numbers as if they are like clear objective truths and nothing could be further from the truth. They're like a useful way to boil down our view of a program quantitatively. And we are aiming to do that. But also there's a huge, huge uncertainty around each of these numbers. And so just to make it, maybe to give an example, if if I had two programs in front of me and one was 11 and one was nine, but I strongly, for whatever reason, felt like the organization implementing the less, quote, cost-effective program was going to do a better job. I would pick the 9x program over the 11x program, notwithstanding what the spreadsheet told me to do, because there's a lot of uncertainty involved. And then it's also the case that in order to compare from a program that delivers cash to enable people to buy more things to a program that improves health and reduces mortality, you have to come up with a translation between those. Uh, We call that moral weights. I think it is probably obvious to every single person listening to this that there is no (laughs) true answer to how you should trade off between those two things. But that is baked in. What, you couldn't just look at the philosophy literature and (laughs) find out the rate? (laughs) I mean, we have to wait another year, and then I'm fairly confident GPT-7 will have the answer. But for now, (laughs) for the next year, we're we're stuck in mode of uncertainty. But obviously, that also introduces a huge range of possible differences. So we use this as a shorthand. It's very useful, but it only is useful insofar as you remember its weaknesses because it's not, quote, the truth. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, so here we've been talking about these like cost effectiveness multiples on on, uh, on giving cash, which is which is quite quite abstract in a way. Another way that you sometimes cash things out is in terms of how much do you have to spend in order to to save the life of typically a child. Is it possible to evaluate some of these uh, programs that we've been talking about in terms of dollars per per life saved? We definitely can and do. Um, I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but we could okay, yeah. go and find them and plug them in if you want them. Yeah. Uh, do you know uh, for, for the Against Malaria Foundation, do you, do you have a sense of like roughly how much it, that you think it costs to save the life of a child under, under five these days? So, so very, very roughly, a number that I would anchor on would be about $5,000 per life saved. There are a lot of programs and a lot of locations where it costs less than that. There are also areas where it costs more than that. But, but it's a useful benchmark to think about, you know, a, a sort of central estimate of single digit thousands of dollars to avert the death of a child in a low income country. Yeah. Off the top of my head, I think that it sounded like the multiple you were suggesting for dispensers for safe water was similar in terms of cost effectiveness to the Against Malaria Foundation. And hopefully, if these two technical assistance programs worked out, that'd be somewhat more cost effective. So the idea might be that maybe they're able to save uh, a life or do do the equivalent uh, of that in terms of health improvement for for a bit less than 5,000. Okay, yeah. Um. So 
What, one challenge with these programs is uh, you have to strain a little bit to see like what is the true cost here? What is really the limiting factor or what's the what's the scarce resource that's that's being used up? I suppose one thing is, well, the, well there's research stuff to have a give war that's very salient. And then there's, I suppose, these economists or technical experts at the Research Institute for Compassionate Economics who could be working on this or could be working on some some other program. But another sort of more more hidden cost might be that you know, the nurses, the doctors, the, the administrative staff at, at these hospitals, uh, although this might not cost more to provide the, the care, ultimately, they're, they're having to think about this. They're having to rejig their, rejig their systems and think about, well, how do, we, uh, how do we change in order to deliver kangaroo mother care rather than maybe making some other improvement to, to their practices? And maybe that's like actually the biggest cost of the program, even though it kind of doesn't have an apparent cost in, in, in dollar terms. Yeah. How, how does Give All handle something like that? So we're aiming to think about this holistically. So in the example of kangaroo mother care, we're aiming to say, let's say that the hospital is convinced to provide additional space for caregivers. Well, I mean, what was that space being used for before? I mean, does that mean that, I don't know, someone who comes in for another condition are, are not being treated? I, I don't know for sure that we explicitly thought about that question in this case, but that is the type of question we're aiming to cover as best we can. But it's also another way in which the the results we we land on are our best sort of our best estimate of what's happening. They're useful primarily to compare programs to one another, but the sort of real world, like what is the true effect of giving two million dollars to rice? Hard to say because there's so many knock on effects of you know what happens. But but anyhow, for sure, we're we're aiming to try and understand. You know, let's say you run a program that pays highly trained medical professionals more to come and treat condition A as opposed to condition B, the impact is not that you've created more impact on condition A, you've also created less impact on condition B. And so in everything we do, there's a section you can find in our reviews where we look at negative or offsetting impact of our support, which is aiming to get at this question of what are the most obvious and direct secondary, uh, often you know potentially negative or offsetting effects that might counterbalance the positive impact our programs are having. Yeah. I mean, it's a very general problem. I think the technical term that economists use when they're doing modeling with this, I think, is the is the shadow cost. So it's kind of this like hidden whatever was given up in this entire system in order to, to deliver one thing rather than another. It, it doesn't only make it hard to evaluate the impact of this program, but just 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 everything. And indeed, in, in normal life, you know, whenever you do one thing, you have to, that's time that you could have spent uh, doing something else. And even if it was useful, if it was worse than <laughs> the alternative, in fact, you've done harm, it could be a little bit mind bending to, and it, it's, it's, it's super Transparent uh, to us, so yeah, just a just a tricky thing. But I think this is a good example of of where getting the local context is very helpful. You know, you could imagine talking to the hospital administrator about kangaroo mother care, and they could say, as uh, their hospital has space that's not being utilized in a lobby. I, I remember a hospital that I was in in Udaipur when I was in India, and there was a lot of excess space that I could just imagine someone rolling some beds into. And then on the other hand, you could imagine them saying the opposite. And this is why purely relying on academic papers and modeling is far from sufficient to make good decisions because you can at least, maybe you can't make a perfect estimate. I mean, I shouldn't say maybe, you certainly cannot make a true estimate of everything, but I think you can get a better sense of where there are sort of higher and lower magnitudes of unmeasured effects and take that into account as you're making grant decisions, which we try to do. 
Yeah, it's a great example of the importance of local knowledge that, you know, whether this program is good or bad might turn on the question of whether the hospital has a spare room at the moment. Uh, and anyone who's dealt with, uh, you know, an office in a growing or shrinking organization knows that you can really flip from having too much to too little space, like quite, quite quickly, just to, because, you know, buildings are very lumpy, basically. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's move on from that and cover our next intervention and approach, which is the nonprofit uh, Miracle Feet, uh, which GiveWell made a, a grant to recently. Yeah. Well, what does, uh, what does Miracle Feet do? So Miracle Feet serves a condition called clubfoot. Clubfoot affects about one in a thousand children when they're born and their foot is turned sideways or backwards. And this makes walking either impossible or challenging. And Miracle Feet supports an intervention called the Ponsetti Method, which treats the child's condition with a series of casts that slowly turn the foot towards the correct direction. Eventually, the leg and foot is braced and ultimately prevents the child from having lifelong disability. Okay. So so, so the kids are born with the, the feet pointing in the wrong direction, but I, I suppose as they're growing, it's possible to redirect it so that the feet are pointing in the, in the right direction. And so the, the prevalence of this is something like one in a thousand births, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I'd, I'd never heard of this, despite it's, uh, it being so common. I suppose that's because in, in, in rich countries, basically, this is just always picked up and people get a good standard of care and basically you get 100% cure rate by the time you're an adult. That's my impression. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, do you know how much it costs to provide this, this treatment to one child? I believe our central estimate is $100 to $200 per child. But this is an area where we really don't know because this is a case where what the organization Miracle Feed is providing is trying to get the clinicians who are present when the child is born to be aware of this condition, to know that there are steps they can take, to ensure that the supplies, most notably the, uh, the, the bracing, is available when the child needs it. The casting is fairly low cost, so is mostly available. This is not the case where most of the cost is providing the commodity. Most of the cost is providing salaries for people who are then doing work to raise awareness both about the problem and what can be done about it. And what that means is that in any location, the fixed costs of implementing this program are quite high. You have to set up a country office, set up local staff, hire them. But the once you've paid those fixed costs, the additional costs for each additional child reached are very low. And we're just not sure how this will all play out. We have some you know data from Miracle Feet historically, but a major component of the support we've provided them now is seeing how they are able to scale up and what that means for children who are counterfactually reached, who wouldn't have been reached before, and their cost structure. Okay. Yeah. So I suppose the dream, the, the, the simple dream would be if Miracle Feet was just paying for all of the all of the care and maybe treating people directly. And then you could just say, well, how many kids did you treat for Clubfoot? And what was your total budget per year? And then you could kind of get a, get a ratio there. But here they're doing something more complicated. So it's a bit hard to figure out what the how much it costs per, per person. I guess the simple dream from the analyst's perspective, <laughs> but I guess the ideal here is that uh, by running the program the way they do, we get better return on the, the money and reap more people ultimately. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So, simpler to analyze, but probably way yeah, less Sometimes you're like, oh, it'd be great if it were just super simple <laughs> and then we could know the truth because, of course, that's what matters most. Yeah, yeah. Could, could everyone just eat one thing so that it's much easier to keep statistics <laughs> on nutrition? Uh, every, sorry, people just, you can only drink fuel now. Uh, we, I need you to be legible. Okay. Um, What's the, what's the case for for making a grant to Miracle Feet? What, what's the case on his face that this would be amazing? So again, like fairly similar, I think, to some of the other programs we talked about in that it's fairly low technology, fairly easy to train people to do. 
And the reason it's not already being done is some form of it being neglected, meaning it's not high on the agenda of the Ministry of Health or hospitals or local clinics because uh, one in a thousand births means that a very large number of children globally are affected by this problem. But for any individual country or individual hospital even, this is not high on the list of things they see or you know on the list of public health problems that they're aiming to fix. And so it really pops and looks great when you're taking a cost effectiveness perspective, taking into account how much it costs and the benefit that's provided. So the benefit would be very large to not have, because if you grow up and this isn't treated, then I suppose it's quite difficult to walk and you're going to have like all kinds of issues as an, as an adult. It's kind of a permanent, a permanent disability that was totally preventable. Why is it that this one is going untreated? Because you think, you know, the parents would really be worried that their child is growing up with their, with their feet pointing in, in, the, in the wrong direction, maybe, and might, might go get follow-up care. And you'd even think from the perspective of, of a country, the you know, internal return to curing this problem must be enormous because it's so cheap to cure up front. And if you don't do that, then you've got this massive problem for, permanently for this person uh, as, an, as an adult. Is there an explanation for why? I mean, I suppose the answer with all of these things seems to be these are extremely resource-constrained places. There's a lot of health issues to treat, and this is just one of many. I think that's right. And if you're, let's say, the minister of health in a country, you're looking at a public health burden from malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea, tuberculosis, HIV, etc., that are far far higher than this. So this is not coming to the top of your agenda. And you have to look at it. I think it's looking at it from the perspective of cost effectiveness, which I think is somewhat rare as people are looking at opportunities to prioritize is what brings this up. And then I think it is harder for me to really understand the caregiver's mindset, but something that has I shouldn't say their mindset, but their their situation. I mean, largely, I think that's because, you know, our our experience in high income countries is so fundamentally different that we're used to feeling as if I have a health problem, I will get care immediately. I mean, I, I told you, Rob, you know, I recently uh, dislocated and fractured my shoulder, and it was mm. actually amazing to me how quickly I got care. I was skiing, the ski patrol came, I went to urgent care, I saw a surgeon. Twelve hours later, I was in surgery. Like three days later. This is sort of the expectation we have, and I think it's very different in low-resource settings where one might not even be aware of the possibility of treating certain conditions. I know we're going to talk about malnutrition later, but one of the activities that organizations focus on when they are trying to reduce malnutrition is helping caregivers, meaning most often parents, know that their children are undernourished by giving them a tape measure to measure their upper arm circumference. And otherwise, they may not know because malnutrition is very common in certain communities. And if you look around you and see that your child looks fairly similar to a lot of other kids, you might not think, you know, you might not have another thought about it. And so I do think that makes some of the intuitive understanding or comparison hard because our experience is so different. Yeah. As I understand it, this intervention you could you could group in a bit with a bunch of other corrective surgeries that Givor has looked into. Yeah, what, what what's this cluster and what do they have in common? Yeah, so there's a number of programs we've looked at over the years, uh, including cleft palate surgery and others. And the big question that we've always had about these is, are you able to support higher volume of this particular health problem without having the offsetting impact of allocating limited, highly skilled medical professional capacity away from condition A to condition B. And the reason that this one really stood out is that the vast majority of this treatment is casting and bracing, which can be 
implemented by uh, lower skilled medical professionals. There is, I forgot this earlier, but there is a surgery called a tenotomy, which loosens the tendons in the foot and ankle. And that, that does have to happen, but it's, we understand fairly straightforward and so easier to conduct. And that's ultimately the reason that this one of all the different types of interventions we've looked at over the years, that this is the one that we've seen as most promising because the, you know, the surgery that has to take place is relatively simple. The overall care is simple and therefore the likelihood of offsetting impact seems less. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is highly related to what we were talking about earlier, that it sounds like you've been wary of funding some of these things in the past because you're worried that, I suppose, maybe just the limiting factor to the number of people who can be treated for these conditions is not funding, rather it's the staff available to treat it. And so maybe you could spend more money on it. And in fact, like no more people are treated because it's just not possible given the number of surgeons available. And I, and I guess an alternative thing would be, well, maybe more people would be treated for this, but then someone else would go untreated for some other condition that they needed a surgeon for. And so maybe the impact is much less than, than what you would think. Is, that's, that's basically it? I think that's right. And that might lead you to say uh, the one approach is investing in surgical capacity in low-income countries, which I think is definitely a, an interesting option, though uh, comes with significant challenges around knowing whether what you're giving to will lead to these positive results far in the future, because training medical professionals and surgeons is a long road. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, it feels like something about this, I guess the expression that we use is kind of that it proves too much because it seems like, you know, we don't normally think in in ordinary life that if we buy one thing or, you know, if we ask doctors to do uh, one thing that that's just going to cause an equal amount of damage in them uh, stopping doing something else, in part because we think that if you pay for more medical care, then hopefully you'll train more doctors over time and, you know, more hospitals will be constructed. And so you might be directing more resources into medical care as a as a whole. And so these offsetting effects in the long run, at least, won't be quite so severe. Is that, is that something that you've, that you've uh, looked into? I guess we've mostly thought about it from the, you know, the perspective of what happens over the next few years as we're supporting you know, more, more of this activity where I remember, you know, talking to a surgeon and he was telling me that more money to his organization would, would be great. And then also said that he was working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was like, I'm not really sure like how you're going to use more time to work with more money. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know, maybe it would have the effect over the long run that you described. Yeah. Yeah, I guess as an economist, you think, well, you might bid up salaries for surgeons and then more people will go and uh, become become surgeons. I mean, I suppose that does highlight how that might be actually difficult in, in very resource constrained or, or poor settings that maybe there isn't a lot of labor market flexibility or, you know, education flexibility that allows many more people to, to be trained up in these skills and stick around merely because more money is being uh, put towards uh, paying for surgeries. Yeah, intuitively, it seems to me that at the margin, you'd be better off funding opportunities that have less of that offsetting impact in the short term. So use school-based deworming as an example, where mostly this is distributed through an existing infrastructure in schools and students are with their teachers at schools, teachers give them deworming pills. This doesn't have a significant offsetting impact. If you can sort of get the same short-term, let's say, cost-effectiveness measure for both, but one has a major offsetting impact, negative offsetting impact, I would probably choose the former over the latter. I'm not sure that's right, but that seems intuitive. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, flipping it around now and saying, well, let's let's take it that this is a really important uh, effect, uh, you know, at least in the short run and maybe in the long run as well. Then you might almost just want to make a list of medical treatments that are important in poor in poor countries and just say, like, just list them from the most trivial, the most basic, something that could be provided by uh, a fool, <laughs> uh, and then try to try to fund that because it's going to be so much easier to scale up and and the opportunity cost of providing that will be much lower. Uh, and I suppose you know, just just giving people a deworming tablet would would look pretty good there and maybe. 
antibiotics and vaccination delivery also relatively straightforward. And I think that ends up playing a role, you know, so something in our prioritization, one, one thing we're doing is we see a lot of programs and we have to make a choice about which ones to look into most. There's some work that we're doing up front to decide which ones to prioritize. And one factor is how straightforward is this to deliver? That's a major component. If something is straightforward to deliver, it moves higher on the list because it's more likely that we'll reach a point where we can direct funding to it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what are your biggest reservations about, about MiracleFeed, if, if you have any? I think the biggest reservation is honestly, like how little we know about two major components of how cost-effective this program is. Uh, number one, how many additional children will be reached because of our support to Miracle Feet. We really do not know. We're at this point guessing, and we are going to know more in a few years. And uh, number two, we don't know how much it costs to reach each additional. Uh, so it's how many will be reached and how much it costs. Those are going to be two major components of what we believe over time, and we're going to learn a lot. So we have our best guesses. But you know, similar to what I've said in the past, this is an area where we, at this point, are optimistic because of our support, but fairly uncertain. And we're effectively making a bet based on our best estimate that's going to settle in a few years. Let's push on to food-related uh, programs now. Yeah, the first of these is treating serious malnourishment among uh, young children, which leads them to be underweight and have stunted stunted growth and development. Yeah, I think uh, you made a, a one million dollar grant to the Alliance for International Medical Action uh, to provide yeah treatment for malnutrition and pediatric emergencies in in Niger. I think that was back in twenty twenty one. Yeah, well, what's the exact uh, problem we're talking about here? Yeah, so many children in low income countries are severely malnourished, which is really undernourished, meaning they're just too skinny. And that could mean low, low weight for height. Um, and also there's a measure of their upper arm circumference, which is the sort of clinical diagnostic for malnutrition. This is then categorized as either moderate acute malnutrition or severe acute malnutrition. And being malnourished, we think, leads to children being more susceptible to death from infectious disease. And so therefore, ultimately, it's a major factor that leads to high mortality rates among children in low-income countries. Yeah. I think of all of the problems that I looked into pre preparing for this interview, this is the one that somehow stunned me the, the most was I think you're estimating that something like 50 to 200 million young children are suffering from malnutrition at any given point in time. An interesting phenomenon with Give All is kind of your mission is to search for the most outrageous, stupid, like harmful things that are happening that would be incredibly easy, easy to solve. And so kind of all all the time, maybe you're identifying things that it's, you know, it, it's kind of crazy that this is happening and uh, because it would be so easily to fix. And that's why we're looking for it and, and funding it. Um, but this may, may be a stupid question, but why are so many young children not eating enough food? Is it, is it poverty or is there more to it? I guess what I would say is in order to treat a child who is severely malnourished, it's fairly costly. So you know, we estimate it's, you know, $100 to $200 per child treated. And so with the prevalence of malnutrition globally, it would be extremely expensive to reach all of those children. You know, I don't personally have a clear and specific understanding of like, what is the root cause of children not having enough calories? Like, wh why is that happening? Aside from the somewhat superficial take of um, you know, when people are in very dire conditions, often they have insufficient food. Yeah. 
maybe this is talking too much about my, my own feelings about things, but one thing that blew me away about this was obviously this is a week uh, when GPT-4 was launched and we're seeing these like just incredible technological breakthroughs. It, it feels like just the things that humanity is capable of are staggering and yet we still can't get, we still failed to get such a large fraction of children enough calories. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure there's any any lesson from that, but the but the world was a crazy place. But I think the world the world is a crazy place is the right take. I mean, just to go through all of the things that we're supporting. I mean, you know, 500,000 people die from malaria every year. Many, many, many people don't have access to clean water. Insufficient food is an even crazier reality than the sort of craziest reality that people's lives in low-income countries are shockingly hard compared to the wealth that we have in high-income countries. And I think there are, because of that, you know, we in high-income countries have an amazing opportunity to improve people's well-being a huge amount if we're, you know, giving and, and supporting, making their lives better. Yeah. Okay. So, so why does it cost about 100 or $200 to treat a child for, for malnutrition? Why does it cost that amount? Yeah. So we're not just giving them basic food. There's more going on here. Well, so, I mean, what, what's happening? Like, what are these organizations doing? Every country has a program that is targeting this problem. This is not a neglected problem. This is a known problem. But the countries don't have the resources to provide the program at the scale that it's needed. And so an organization like Alima comes in and on one hand, they are providing some basic health commodities, the literal food that is being provided to the kids, like the high calorie density food is provided by nonprofit support. Um, they are training health workers both to identify malnutrition in communities, but also screen and treat children when they come in. And they're providing incentives for staff so that staff are there and staffing the clinics where children show up. Um, one of the things that has been challenging historically and is something that Alima has worked on is aiming to have sort of a a standard protocol for treating children, whether they are moderately malnourished or severely malnourished. Before, there was a totally different protocol for each, and that made it challenging because you had to have two different setups to treat kids when they came in, and they tried to simplify that where basically you do something more severe, more intense for severely malnourished children, less severe for moderately malnourished children. Um, but in addition to bringing them in, giving them this sort of specialized food that's very high in calories to treat them, often children present with infectious disease. And so part of reducing mortality from malnutrition is uh, receiving kids who have this additional risk factor and treating their other health conditions at that moment to get them back to full health so that they're able to you know, live successful lives. Okay. So what new stuff did you learn in the process of researching this one? Because as you said, this is a known issue and one probably that you'd thought about uh, years ago, but, but hadn't yet funded. Yeah. So look, there's a lot of issues, like we were saying, where it's a catastrophe that you know people are still suffering in 2023 from these problems. Our work in trying to understand this problem was what does giving to the organizations working on this accomplish? How cost-effective is it? And the, the sort of first challenge in malnutrition that prevented us from working on it earlier is the available data that would enable you to estimate how often do children who are malnourished die and what is the treatment effect of giving them high-calorie food is all from observational studies that were conducted in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, where researchers basically followed groups of children tracked their level of malnutrition, their eventual mortality rates, and you know, sort of put that together to come up with an overall estimate of the mortality risk from malnutrition, the, the treatment effect of treating for malnutrition, 
And, you know, observational data like that is very hard to interpret. And to sort of come up with a, a central estimate of how the world of the 70s, 80s, and 90s uh, compares to today was very time consuming for us. And so, you know, it took us some time to get to it. Um, so that maybe that's like the, the starting point of just like what made this challenging on its face. Yeah. Okay. So, so the big uncertainty was around how many lives would you save per person who was who the service was delivered to, and and the problem was that there weren't randomized trials where some people were not <laughs> not treated for it, uh, and so you kind of had to. I guess how, how do the observational studies establish this at all? Uh, what, what what do they compare the treatment group to? So what they're doing is is tracking children, you know, children of all different nutritional statuses, and finding that children who are very severely malnourished have a much higher mortality rate than children who don't have that same underlying condition. Now, the obvious question is like the unobserved variables, um, but basically we're relying on that. I think there's a, I don't know, highly plausible slash intuitive case. We know that insufficient food ultimately leads to death. And so yeah. we're starting with that as a very important anchor in an overall assessment of this. Humans need food to live. Yeah. Um, but then we're then using that data to form the the estimate that we need because ultimately our job is not just to say, you know, it would be better than not if everyone were treated for malnutrition, which is obviously true, but decide uh, where, when, and to what extent to support malnutrition versus the array of other global health problems that we've been talking about. Yeah, I suppose uh, you could have a reverse causation thing where children that have some other health condition, uh, you know, maybe they have an, an ongoing infection, perhaps that's causing them not to eat so much because they don't have much appetite because they're, they're ill. And I, I guess you could imagine other causal pathways as well. Yeah, exactly. It's complicated. You could imagine a lot. Yeah, right, right. Okay, so, so basically, it was just a question of it, it, took, a, it took a very long time to, to look into this. It sounds like this was you know, close to your threshold for funding and not funding, that this question of, you know, just how bad is it to be malnourished could make the difference between it being worth funding uh, and not funding, which is which is kind of interesting. It's, it surprises me a little bit the degree to which many of these different interventions seem to have quite similar cost-effectiveness estimates from, from your analysis. You might think, well, they, they, could, they could just be radically, radically different numbers where something could be 100x cash and some, you know, other things could be much, much worse than, than cash. I suppose, well, you wouldn't look at the ones that are much worse than cash, but you could imagine uh, much, much more variance. Yeah, is there anything interesting about that or any possible explanation? I mean, I think the explanation is that that's exactly what we observe. So, you know, we're if you, if you looked at our cost effectiveness spreadsheet, which I know now you're, you're in love with, you can go back to, if you look at the each individual uh, program we're supporting, so say malaria nets in this location, you'll see, I mean, maybe not malaria nets, but for vitamin A supplementation, you'll see numbers that are very high in that 50, 60x zone. And then, of course, what we're talking about are the programs that we decided to support, which are nearly always going to be 10x or higher. But there are plenty of programs that we end up estimating as, I don't know, two, three, one, maybe less. Obviously, very far below one we probably don't spend a lot of time on. But we see this very wide variation in everything we consider from you know, very low to very high. Yeah. So where does um, the, the malnourishment treatment uh, now kind of compare to, did you know the multiple roughly off the top of your head? Well, so I think like one important thing to know that we're not talking about as much is you know, malnutrition as a whole is not going to have some, you know, estimate of of what its cost effectiveness is on average globally, because, um, you know, basically there are some places where underlying government resources and treatment are quite poor, malnutrition rates are quite high, mortality rates are quite high, and 
there's relatively relatively higher population density. So like if you have those four characteristics, those are going to be the locations and the contexts where malnutrition will be very cost effective. And then as any of those four factors changes, you'll be in a context where it is much less cost effective. To be honest, the same is true for every other program we've discussed, maybe with the exception of the very small ones where we've actually focused on a location and largely the grant has a primary learning purpose, malaria nets, vitamin A, water. These are all programs where there are going to be locations where it would make no sense to support this program because it won't be very cost effective. And then some locations where it's extremely cost effective. And what we're aiming to do is find those locations where it is. And so for malnutrition, the, um, the areas that we've supported it, we believe are in that 10x or so zone. Uh, but that's not to say that sort of malnutrition everywhere would be in that zone. We're looking for those places where we're going to get the cost effectiveness that will enable us to deliver money to organizations that then help people you know, above where we would otherwise spend that marginal dollar. Yeah, yeah. It's a slight guilty pleasure of mine getting you to give these uh, precise multiple figures, because I know having done cost effectiveness analysis myself sometimes that you feel so uncomfortable saying it because you because there's so much uncertainty. You know, you sure you say like 10x, but it could be two and it could be <laughs> 30. I'm glad to know that you're you're just trolling me. That's good to know. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's a reason why, why you do say these numbers, which is that in the process of pinning it down, you learn a whole lot uh, and it kind of focuses the mind rather than just allowing allowing things to be vague. And I think it's a very important, you know, this is just another one of those important ways in which the the way historical GiveWell communicated, we said program X or organization Y is good and here is its cost effectiveness. And that is just not reality. Like there are some locations where malaria prevalence is much, much higher than it is elsewhere. There are some locations where uh, underlying child mortality is much higher than it is elsewhere. And that has a major effect on the cost effectiveness, a big part of what we do is not only to say this program is worth considering, but then identify a location and organization and a context where that program will be delivered above our cost effectiveness threshold. Okay. Uh, yeah, in November 2021, GiveWell published this article, uh, yeah, why malnutrition treatment is one of our top research priorities, uh, laying out why you wanted to look into this uh, much more. Yeah, how have your views changed since then, if, if at all? Yeah, so I think back then, based on this sort of complicated assessment of the evidence that we had gone through, we thought that malnutrition was exceptionally cost-effective. Like we were going to find maybe hundreds of millions of dollars worth of programs around the world that were going to be above that 10x bar. And because it seemed like it might be so much of our funding, we decided to dig fairly deep into the evidence to see what we could make of it. And I'm happy to sort of go into that process and and what we learned, but the bottom line is that whole process then led us on a long investigation over the course of another year that meaningfully updated us about the cost effectiveness of malnutrition programs globally, um, both at at one point and sort of took us all the way down where we thought mostly they would be in the 2x range. Then we thought we made it, we realized we had made a mistake there and kind of came back to a point where we expect to fund malnutrition programs in certain prog- in certain contexts based on the factors I described, um, but moderated a lot from where we had been previously based on you know going deeper into the analysis. Yeah, it sounds like there might have been a lot of little modifications there that, that you found by scrutinizing things more closely. But is there like maybe one or two that, that you could explain? Yeah, I, I think I'll explain the what ended up being the biggest factor. And so what uh, we were relying on this observational data as I described, and this kind of there was a meta-analysis of all of this, which had a sort of aggregate, effectively an aggregate ratio 
of uh, the mortality risk to a severely malnourished child relative to the mortality risk of the, I don't know, the normally nourished child. And that was sort of an aggregate data point that came out of a a meta-analysis of this observational data. And when we actually went back and like got the data, what we realized is that all of the individual observational studies had different follow-up points for reaching a conclusion about the mortality risk. So, you know, maybe I don't remember the exact timeframes, but imagine one sort of assessed nutrition status at day zero and then assessed mortality after two months. And then another one maybe did the same, but after a year. And there was a very clear relationship between time to follow-up and mortality risk. Basically, the shorter the follow-up, the higher the ratio of malnourished mortality was to regular mortality, because often, you know, malnutrition sort of can move around. And so over the course of a year, many other factors introduce themselves to a child's life that lowers the strength of the relationship between these two factors. Mm. And so uh, we had David Rudman, sort of of I don't know, of, of some fame, dig into it. Another uh, expert, sort of a statistical expert, uh, dig into this data. And that significantly lowered, we, we had mistakenly, I should say, used this ratio as like an annualized number in our estimate of the effect of malnutrition on mortality. That was an error on our part. When, when we did this big reanalysis, it led us to significantly reduce that figure and lowered the cost effectiveness from where we previously were. Got it. Okay, right. So, uh, of course, yeah, the, the time immediately after someone comes in for malnutrition is a, is a time of particularly acute risk of them dying uh, because of malnutrition. Uh, and so you were taking numbers that were looking at the, the rate of death over those few months and then extrapolating that to the, to the following year. But, that's, uh, but that, that's, just, that's just not correct to do because probably their malnutrition will go away and the risk will decrease. Yeah, and I think what was surprising to us was you know, the original meta-analysis that we read didn't highlight this fact. Now, maybe if we were more embedded in this particular field, we would be more aware of the sort of norms of description there, but it presented sort of a high-level number, and we took that at face value, obviously made this other error. And so this was a case where, you know, often GiveWell goes deep into things, and many times we go deep, and it doesn't change our mind. It's like we know more about it, we've learned more but this was a case where we went really, really deep and spent a ton of time sort of collectively, and it made a big difference to what we ended up doing. Yeah. I suppose I could ask this question about almost any of these programs, but um, do you think GiveWell might uh, benefit from having a dedicated malnutrition expert on staff, someone who'd worked on malnutrition in the past and was uh, really familiar with it? Because um, as I understand it, you mostly hire generalists rather than specialists. So I'm not sure about the answer. Um, you know, mostly we get subject matter expertise by talking to outsiders. I mean, there's so many different types of expertise that we rely on that I think it would be hard for us to have experts in every domain. And so we spend a lot of time talking to people who don't work at GiveWell for, for help. Um, we are hiring currently for a malaria researcher, and that's to find someone who is going to be dedicated to malaria and uh, has more experience in malaria and can bring that to bear on our work because malaria is the disease to which we direct the most funding. And that's an experiment. You know, if that goes well, I could easily imagine bringing on more dedicated researchers in areas where we do a lot of ongoing work. Okay, let's move on to the last of these six interventions, um, another nutrition-related one, in this case, vitamin A deficiency and supplementation. In the interest of time, we'll keep this one a little bit brief. But yeah, uh, what, what's the story with, uh, with vitamin A? So there were a series of trials conducted, um, you know, 30, 40 years ago that found that delivering 
vitamin A supplements twice a year to children between the ages of six months and five years reduces all-cause child mortality by about 20 to 25%. And so we are supporting two organizations, uh, Helen Keller International as a top charity, Nutrition International as a organization that's somewhat newer to us to deliver this program globally where there are high rates of underlying childhood mortality and, you know, we believe relatively high rates of vitamin A deficiency. Yeah. Was there a reason you didn't fund vitamin A earlier or did, did you learn anything interesting in the process of, of looking into this one? You know, we've been funding vitamin A for a while, so I'd say it was still sort of relatively early in GiveWell's growth. You know, for a long time, we were a teeny organization and so had very little capacity to do very much. What made vitamin A complicated is maybe like most importantly, that a lot of the trials are from a long time ago and it can be difficult to know how programs today will, you know, will, will what the results will be given those trials from a long time ago. And so we did spend some time, you know, sitting with that. Uh, you know, there have also been uh, some trial, including notably the very largest randomized trial that found, you know, a near zero effect in India of vitamin A supplementation. And so it was a, uh, you know, a more complicated case of evidence to sort through and arrive at a conclusion. So you're saying a lot of the a lot of the trials on vitamin A are from a different era, the 60s, 70s, 80s. I guess maybe the, the trials were done back then because people were still learning more about vitamin A and, and nutrition, and maybe it was a bigger bigger problem then. Yeah, how, how do you go about extrapolating that to today and figuring out whether anything relevant has really changed? So, without a great deal of certainty, but the process that we that we take is, you know, we we think that the sort of key factors in a vitamin A program are going to be underlying vitamin A deficiency, so where people don't have the vitamin A they need, and then high rates of underlying childhood mortality. Those are the, the two factors that are going to lead to the most cost-effective program. And so th that's what we rely on. I think there's certainly a question that maybe the world has changed so much over the last 30 years that, uh, I mean, one, one way of putting this might be maybe vitamin A deficiency is not the, the sort of the key characteristic. It was vitamin A deficiency and very high rates of infectious disease and childhood mortality, those rates are all much lower today, and you might expect a lower effect. The way we've tried to approach this is, is we are mostly anchoring on the idea that vitamin A deficiency is the key driver of what's happening here. But we have been exploring the possibility of running a larger scale randomized trial to try and assess the impact of this program in the world today where I think the biggest challenge in running a trial like that is the, you know, with mortality rates being what they are today, which is great, they're much lower, it makes effectively powering a trial much harder and much more expensive. And so it's not clear to us that we could, you know, actually pull that off in a way that would be broadly cost-effective. And by broadly cost-effective, I mean, in expectation, we would guess that this trial could lead us to either put more or less into vitamin A by an amount that is worth the cost of the randomized trial. That's actually something that has been a fairly active investigation. And it's a good example of something that I think we would be more holistically considering if we had more research capacity. So it's, you know, we've, we've sort of looked into this randomized trial. We said, this could be good, hard to figure out. Oh, we don't really have enough capacity. And it's one of the reasons we're trying to hire more people because it can help us have a more, uh, I don't know, a better answer to this question about what else we could be doing to update. Totally. Okay, well, we're going to push on to something pretty different now. But maybe a final question is, um, what's an intervention that Giveaway hasn't written about that much that you might write about in, in coming years that you're kind of uh, excited by? 
So I think like right now uh, we talked about water and I think water is the intervention that I don't know, it doesn't matter, but I'm personally most excited about. And I think that's because the need is huge globally. There are so many contexts that have different characteristics that will lead it to be more cost-effective or less cost-effective in certain places. We have these three interventions that we're looking at, never mind the opportunity to potentially support the implementation of those three interventions, dispensers, inline chlorination, or vouchers alongside a government via you know technical assistance. And so the scope of the opportunity here seems quite large. Um, it's also an area that notwithstanding its concreteness and intuitive appeal is relatively underfunded by major donors. You know, HIV, AIDS, uh, malaria, TB, immunizations, these have large funding bodies, both from the U.S. government and then from other governments that, and the U.S. government and the Gates Foundation that collectively pool their funds in institutions like Gavi or the Global Fund to deliver programming. This doesn't exist for water quality. And so I think we're also very cognizant of that and hopefully can not only support these programs as they're scaling up, support research so we make better decisions, but hopefully support institutions in trying to advocate to governments and funders to bring more money into this space because it does seem relatively underfunded compared to its need. Okay, so that's the yeah six new intervention areas that give all us started funding and some information about them. Uh, it's, it's all, it's all uh, reasonably in, in, in the weeds. And uh, I guess now I want to push on to much higher level ideas for, for how GiveWell uh, could or possi- possibly should uh, do, do things differently. Yeah, one alternative worldview or general take on how to think about effectively helping people comes from this outfit called the, the Happier Lives Institute. They're a lot newer and, and smaller than GiveWell. And I guess their progression maybe puts them somewhere uh, where GiveWell was, uh, was at around, say, 2010 or 2011. Their aim is also to make recommendations about which charities do the most good. And, and, they, and they think a lot about the developing world as well. But the distinctive part of their take is that they want to cash uh, all of the impact of these projects out in terms of subjective well-being itself, self-assessed subjective well-being. So to compare across charities, they use this metric called the Wellbe, which I guess is a, it's kind of a play on the, on, on the DALI. I'm not sure whether they came up with that, the DALI being a disability-adjusted life year, a measure of health. The Wellbe is uh, a measure of well-being. And uh, one Wellbe is the value of raising someone's self-assessed subjective well-being by one point on a 10-point scale for one year. So if an intervention made me go from rating my life a 5 out of 10 to a 6 out of 10, and that impact lasted for 12 months, then that would be one well-be that had been generated. So their hope is to evaluate charities on that basis, um, trying in every case to say how many well-bees are generated per, per dollar spent. Because GiveWell does, of course, care about subjective well-being of the, of the people that it, that it helps, but it's more likely to cash out the effect of its grants in terms of doublings of income for a year or lives saved or increases in children's weight or, or benefits other than uh, you know, reported subjective well-being. I, I guess just first off, yeah, what, what do you think are the pros and cons of trying to use improvements in subjective well-being per dollar as a measure of cost effectiveness? Yeah, so first, I think it would be helpful for me to just explain what GiveWell is doing today, which is we cash everything out either in terms of increased ability to consume, i.e. people have more money, or reductions in disability-adjusted life years, some of which are uh, health-related and some are mortality-related. But I very much take the point that subjective well-being is an important consideration. You know, we don't view the two outcomes we use today as the only outcomes that make sense. They're just the two outcomes that, you know, we've been able to use to date. And I do think over time, as we continue to grow and increase the size of our team, we'll be in a position to include more factors explicitly in in that analysis. I I think the 
the pro of subjective well-being measures is that it's one more angle to use to look at the effectiveness of a program. It's obviously an important one. Or since it's obviously, it seems to me it's an important one, and I would like us to take it into consideration. And then I think the downside is, or the reasons not to might be on, on one level, I, I think it can just be harder to measure. You know, a death is, is very straightforward. We, we know what has happened, and the measures of subjective well-being are um, squishier in ways that it makes it harder to really know what it is. And then also, you know, I think some people, well, some people might say, I really value reducing suffering and therefore I choose subjective well-being. I also think other people might say, you know, I, I think these measures are telling me something that is not part of my sort of view of the good. And I don't want to support that. And, um, that, you know, that would cause someone to, to try and uh, would want to leave it out of sort of their, you know, calculus and the donations they're making. I think in some sort of ideal world, I would love for GiveWell to be able to offer options for donors who have different philosophical perspectives about what they want to achieve. Obviously, GiveWell institutionally also needs to have a view because there's funds that come to us directly. But ideally, uh, I think in, in sort of the future vision of GiveWell, you know, for people who have subjective well-being as their core focus, other moral values, or maybe even a very different trade-off between increasing income and reducing disability-adjusted life years, uh, you know, or increasing dollars, maybe depending on how you think about it. Those are programs we'd like to be able to bring to donors and let them choose because we don't see ourselves as being, I don't know, we're not trying to add value by being particularly good philosophically. That's not part of like GiveWell's comparative advantage. And so it'd be better if we could, where donors want it, allow them to use their own judgments to make decisions. Yeah, you've got to leave it to the philosophers to not have answers to those questions. Does GiveWell view its goal or its primary goal as being to increase subjective well-being of the people they're helping? Or is it some more pluralistic or vague goal maybe uh, where, you know, you value saving someone's life uh, above and beyond or, or differently than just because it has allowed them to have more subjective well-being? Yeah, I'd say it's a, overall a broader and maybe I'd say not maybe vaguer, but a broader conception of the good. But it is vaguer in the sense that I can't describe exactly what that is. And instead, it's aiming to in some idealized sense, on one hand, aggregate different conceptions of the good to enable no one to carry the day, or in another way, offer people, donors, the opportunity to give in a way that's consistent with their conception of the good. And one of those conceptions would be subjective well-being as the primary measure. Yeah. It seems like when making trade-offs between the good done by doubling someone's income for a year uh, as against, you know, improving their health in one way or another or saving their life. So you have to have kind of trade-off ratios between these things in order to evaluate programs that have these different economic and, and health impacts. And it seems like, you know, even if subjective well-being isn't the only thing that you value, probably in the background there somewhere, there has to be some idea of the subjective well-being being generated by these different inter interventions, uh, and then you've got to do some rate of exchange between them. So yeah, is, is GiveWell kind of implicitly using well-bees to a point as, as, as some aspect of its intervention, even if it doesn't call them that specifically? Yeah, so I'm going to answer your question directly. But first, I want to just give a point of context on this, this sort of whole line of discussion around maybe the, the philosophical judgments that go into these decisions, which is there are some parts of GiveWell's work that I would characterize as mature, meaning we have put a lot of time into, and energy into it. Obviously, we might be making a mistake. We probably are in some ways, but we're doing that work at a very high quality level because we've invested in it significantly over the years. And I think this is an area, moral weights, where I, I don't feel the same way. I don't think this is a mature part of GiveWell. Instead, this is a part of GiveWell that has 
a huge amount of room for improvement. And quite frankly, one of the areas where I think we will improve as we increase the size of our staff, as we're successful with recruiting, as new people come on board, is in this area. So this is an area, I mean, it's it's obviously quite hard and different than the rest of what we do. So I'll, I'll give you answers, but also want to make sure that when we're having this sort of conversation about GiveWell, it's easy to assume that either we're highly confident about everything we do or something, or that everything is at a similar level of maturity. And this is a part of our work that I think is, I don't know, to put it differently, I feel much better about the, let's say, the quality of the analysis, the depth, the number of times it's been argued about and turned over and just the attention that has been paid to an estimate of mortality for malnutrition, even though I know it may be very wrong, than I do about moral weights where we haven't reached that same level. And so everything I say is at a, I don't know, a shallower level of depth than uh, maybe the other things we've been talking about so far. Sure, yeah. So there's that moral uh, weight aspect. But I guess there's also an empirical question to some extent about how much do the, the beneficiaries of these different charities think that these different charities are improving their well-being? And I guess if you don't have access to that data and subjective well-being is one thing that you care about, it's one way of improving the good, then you might kind of implicitly have in mind when you're doing these trade-offs in the spreadsheet how much well-being is being generated by deworming or, uh, or by, by malaria prevention. Right. So then, then what's actually happening? I mean, when we've tried to put our recommendations into a WellBe framework, we literally have used the estimate from the Happier Lives Institute uh, for cash as a way of getting a WellBe associated with income improvements, which is a component of you know the, the programs that we support. I also think that well-being is definitely in people's minds when they're trying to come up with the you know, ratio of income to health. People are, you know, whether it's us or donors or the program participants, you know, where we uh, funded this survey by ID Insight to go around and ask people how they would trade off between different things. Uh, you know, people living in Ghana and Kenya, I think well-being is probably in their mind, but not elicited explicitly so far in the work that we've done. Yeah. One thing that occurred to me reading through some of the Happy Lives Institute uh, work, work this week was just, I guess, was you know, GiveWell is in a difficult empirical situation where so many things that are very important for your cost effectiveness analysis is hard to pin down. You don't you don't really know. I feel like the happier lives folks are in an even like a much more difficult uh, situation because so many interventions that might be really effective at improving subjective well-being, even the studies of them don't take surveys of, of subjective well-being. And I mean, that, and that's, uh, as you're saying, even if they did, it's harder to quantify properly using surveys like that than compared to measuring measuring deaths, for example, which are far more far more concrete and less likely to be affected by exactly how you measure it. So just the number of studies that you can draw on if you're strictly only going to consider subjective well-being is is much, much lower. And I think another thing that really bites is that subjective well-being outcomes is really at the end of the chain of kind of all of these different factors about someone's life, you know, their income, their health, their education, their relationships, all of these different factors. And then if you improve like one one aspect of their life, like you improve one component of their health by preventing them from getting malaria... If you were trying to detect the effect of that on some malaria-specific thing, like you know their, their iron levels or their probability of dying of malaria, for example, or their probability of having kind of long malaria, you know, long long-term effects of, of having been affected with malaria, because malaria is the main thing that, or like a a super important thing that affects those. You can see a much larger effect relative to the background variation in in how much those things are changing over time and varying between people, but. 
subjective well-being being affected by so many other things, if you help someone with malaria, that effect could easily be really washed out by the time you're looking at someone's subjective well-being, you know, a month later or, or two months later, because there's so many other things affecting that, creating creating much more variation. And so in order to be able to pick up the effect of an intervention on subjective well-being, you need a much larger study than if you're detecting some far more proximate outcome, uh, you know, like like the effect of, uh, you know, the, uh, clean water on diarrhea. Is there anything you want to add to that? I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think that it plays into some of how we've thought about the the program that, you know, some programs that are explicitly focused on subjective well-being and, and thinking about like their effects. And we can talk about that. But I broadly agree with you. I think that it's a, in some ways, it's a challenging metric to use. And I think there is, on one hand, reason to say, well, notice that challenge and maybe take that into consideration as a a sort of a point in favor that you're just not going to find the same evidence. And then at the same time, you might say, gosh, it's really hard to help people in low-income countries. Maybe there's reason to give uh, credence to the measures that are easier to deal with and easier to know that you've done something good and made someone's life better. Yeah, yeah. I'm expressing a lot of sympathy with the with the researchers at Happy Lives Institute because they because they have their work cut out for them. I think it I think it's a good challenge to people to, to like in as much as there are contexts where there are studies being done that are powered to detect an effect of subjective well being that could start asking questions like this. Uh, you know, m- maybe it would be uh, worth getting more of them to do that and then see whether whether the development community as a whole can make meaningful use of them. I guess Happy Lives Institute. I guess I'll call it HLI. Yeah, it's still young, and you know they haven't looked into so many so many charities. Uh, I guess partly for the reasons probably we've been mentioning. But having looked at a few, uh, HLI suggests giving to a group called Strong Minds, which tries to treat depression among women in Uganda, but possibly some other countries as well. But yeah, the intervention they use is a sort of peer therapy, building a community of people who are all suffering from similar mental health problems and meet regularly and try to figure out how to solve their their problems together. And I, I think the recommendation rests on a couple of underlying uh, ideas that the research has led them to conclude. First one is that suffering depression is extremely bad for subjective well-being. Another one is that uh, that group talk therapy can make a really big dent in people's levels of depression. It can it can help a significant fraction of people re- recover sooner. Also, it seems like peer therapy is pretty cheap to provide per person because kind of one facilitator can support many patients in these in these sessions uh, helping one another. And also, they, they think that reducing depression among women, I guess, in, in particular mothers, probably has really big positive spillover effects to other people in, the, in, in their household, you know, in particular, their, their children and, and partners, I imagine. So with that little pitch out of the way, yeah, is it possible to identify and break down the underlying reasons why GiveWell doesn't recommend uh, strong minds or I suppose, you know, any other charity delivering that kind of intervention? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I think we should do that. I think it's really interesting. And I think it's also illustrative of what's really going on in the background often in what we are doing. So I think it helps people understand GiveWell's work because often you might start and say, oh, well, maybe the underlying difference is GiveWell doesn't care about subjective well-being. And that's what, and it's really not. I think ultimately what it comes down to is we have a different interpretation of the empirical data, meaning we look at the same empirical data, reach different conclusions about what it means for the likely impact of the program in the real world. And um, maybe we could go through like a couple of the most salient examples of those differences of opinion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go, go for it. And then I, I do want to say, like, uh, I guess you'll have to play. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm not sure if I can be devil's advocate on GiveWell, but you should certainly be because obviously <laughs> we're just going to sit here and uh, sort of spout off on, on our take. And I think, um, you know, HLI has done a huge amount of work on this. And, you know, this is a case where, you know, it's not, it's not just that there's uncertainty, but, you know, I think reasonable people can really disagree. And I, 
I think it's just hard to, anyhow, I don't want to be here kind of spouting off on Gibbal's take with any, any notion that like, I think that we're sort of definitely right or something like that. Totally. So look, I mean, there, there's these papers and, you know, there's a lot of different variables that go into kind of coming up with a cost effectiveness estimate. Um, James Snowden wrote a post on the EA forum recently about spillover effects and his disagreement. So I think there's a lot to go into, but I just wanted to focus on two. Uh, and I think these two factors, you know, can start to explain a, a lot of the difference. So, you know, factor number one is that the way the measure, the, the measure in the trial is to, after the fact, go back to the treatment in the control group and ask them about their sort of depression symptoms. And I think there's something that often is referred to as social desirability bias, which is people responding to the surveyors by telling them what they want to hear. And in this case, you know, you can't do a placebo-controlled trial. Like, you know whether or not you participated in group therapy or not. And I think this creates a real challenge in interpreting the measured result in the study in terms of its meaning for what you actually believe is happening in the real world. Meaning we know what the treatment group and the control group responded to the depression questionnaire. What we don't know is, you know, how much that has been biased by an expectation that they should respond in a certain way. And so, I don't know, like in our view, sort of I'm looking at our cost effectiveness model and we apply an 80% adjustment to that factor. We say, well, let's just assume that we'll downgrade the result by 20%. That's what we assume. But I mean, honestly, like, I, I don't know, is it, should it be 90%? Should it be 10%? I really have like very little sense, but I think, I think HLI has it at hundred percent or meaning they just don't adjust for the, they don't discount for this factor. This is just one difference. And I, I can go through the other one, but before I do that at length, which is not necessary, you know, if you have two factors, each of which you adjust for with a, uh, a multiply by, by 0 0.7, you're having the impact right there. And I think this is a big part of the reason why, in general, GiveWell often has cost-effectiveness estimates that differ from uh, maybe the organizations that come to us because we say, well, we're looking at a very wide range of interventions. Something that we're always trying to do is adjust for offsetting impacts or how the results of the studies generalize to the real world, ways in which the measured results in the study might not be representative of what you would get if you ran the study today. And that has this series of adjustments. And we're trying to you know, make those adjustments consistently over time, but they have like fairly big effects on the bottom line numbers for the program. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose that there's various sources or various different studies of this kind of peer therapy, uh, right? And I, and I think... You know, if you're being really thorough at the cutting edge of analyzing these sorts of things, there's ways of trying to address this social desirability bias to, to make it much smaller and get results that you that you maybe trust a bit more. Is it, is it the case that maybe, uh, you know, the studies that have looked at this haven't haven't been quite at that level? Or maybe you think they weren't able to fully, fully account for that and try to you know, have an equal amount of social desirability bias between the treatment group and the and the control group? Yeah, I'm not sure. My, my understanding is no, but I think it's a good question. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand it. You can't, can't be across every, every single detail of, it, of everything. Um, I guess, yeah, do you, uh, you want to describe the, the, the second issue? Yeah, so the, the second issue is how you would expect this program to operate at scale and how its effects would exist at scale relative to its effects um, in a trial context. And I think this issue sort of seems intuitive to me. If I'm a researcher and I want to study the effects of group therapy on depression, I think I'm very likely to ensure that 
the way the program is conducted in the trial is maintaining like high fidelity to my model of how the program works. As this program reaches scale, that's just no longer possible. Uh, organizations grow and it's harder to maintain a level of quality as they do that. Um, you know, we try to adjust for this. One of my favorite examples is there was a malaria net study, just one of the many, where researchers were checking whether or not people were under sleeping under nets every morning at like four in the morning. Like they were literally going to people's houses and checking. And that is off, that was not common. But that's the type of activity you might have you might expect in a randomized trial that would not be possible at all. There are obviously other stories. The GiveWell, best GiveWell example is No Lean Season, which was an organization we recommended several years ago. Not going to go into the details now. I think it's been discussed, but it was a case where there were several randomized trials that showed a big effect. When it was scaled up, it didn't have the same effect. And this wasn't because of anything weird or pernicious particularly happening, but when you tried to go from small context to large context, it changed the way the program was implemented and it wasn't as effective. I think it's an interesting story, but that's another one where you know, we adjust, our adjustment is multiplying by 0.75, uh, HLI doesn't multiply by something, and so therefore you end up with you know, another reduction. Uh, again, don't have a great idea of like how much to adjust. So, so those are two factors. Happy to talk about those factors. And then I think another thing that would be interesting to talk about just to flag it would be, you know, how do you start to think about where you want to be on this spectrum, you know, of, of maybe near 100% adjustment, uh, which would, you know, or multiply by, by one, which would be no, no adjustment, all the way down to multiplying by some very low number. Um, as you probably know, in the case of deworming, we're multiplying in one case by 0.1, 10%, because we're trying to adjust for a huge amount of, I don't know, uncertainty and strangeness in that result to arrive at what we think is a better, more accurate estimate. It sounds like the fact that these kinds of adjustments, you know, multiplying by 0.8, uh, 0.7, and then doing that a few times, that that is decision relevant here, suggests that it's at least kind of in the ballpark of uh, some of the charities that, that you're recommending. So, so you think it's, it's an interesting option. It just kind of hasn't, hasn't quite made it. I think it's an interesting, yeah, option. It hasn't quite made it. Like if you said, what's your best guess right now? I would say, I don't know, my personal best guess would be about one to two times as cost effective as cash transfers, but also there's a lot of disagreement internally. There's you know some people who would probably double that number, and um, so it's yeah it's in an area where additional research could change our mind. I believe there is additional research coming out. There's a study that's being conducted that I think is registered in the uh, I don't know the Registry of Clinical Trials that may even be out by the time this show airs. So that would be fun. That should give us you know some updated information. But um, yeah, certainly potentially in the range of possibilities. And it comes down to more to empirical questions than philosophical ones. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I'd be interested to see what uh, what comes of that of that trial. Um, I know HLI has uh, had various other um, posts where they, they've kind of gone deep on some of your cost effectiveness analyses and suggested some some improvements that they think that, that you could make. Maybe could you point to one of those that, that, that you agree with that's that's been helpful? Yeah, I mean, they went extremely deep on our deworming cost effectiveness analysis and pointed out an issue that we had glossed over where the effect of the deworming treatment degrades over time. Uh, we had sort of seen that degrading as, I guess we had assumed it was somewhat, the way we had treated it, I should say, was that's just a noisy estimate. And we treated it as just took the average estimate sort of persisting over the long run. And their critique convinced us that we should at least incorporate some probability that the effect is degrading into our overall model. And that shifted our overall assessment of deworming down by a small amount. Um, you know, had we taken their correction on board in the past, it would have been, would have meant like a few million dollars that we would have given elsewhere instead of deworming. You know, we, we think 
their sort of published critique, I think, went was was not. We didn't agree with the sort of headline result that they reached, but we're really grateful for that critique. And um, I, I thought it was just a you know it, it catalyzed us to launch this change our mind contest, and also was a great example of the sort of engagement that we're getting from being transparent. That we can say, here's our decisions, here's why. They could point to an error, and it changes our mind, and that was really cool, and we were really grateful for it. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, of course, we'll stick up links to links to all of these uh, articles if people are curious to, to learn more. I guess I'm curious to hear your reaction to one other argument that the Happy Lives Institute has made about the goodness of saving or extending lives versus improving well-being while while, while people are alive. I'll have to explain that they've used a little bit out here first, so bear with me. Got to, got to bring all the listeners along. But yeah, I think it's fair to say that a thread that runs through HLI's thinking is that you and, and maybe other people are overweighting the value of preventing people from dying relative to the value of improving their well-being, holding constant how long they live for. And one of the first reasons they offer for this, uh, for why this might be true, uh, is that actually maybe it's not so bad not to exist because it's not bad to be dead while you're alive because you're not dead. And it's not bad for you to be dead while you're dead because nothing could be bad for you while you're dead. Uh, this is the so-called, uh, I think, Ep- Epicurean uh, argument about death. Um, I'm, I'm going to skip over, over that one for time here, though people who are interested can find some discussion of it in the episode. Episode uh, 86 of the show, uh, Hillary Graves on whether existing can be good for us. Um, actually, another philosophical argument that one might make here that I, I'm not sure whether HLI has made, but I, I'm more intuitively sympathetic to personally, is just the intuition that one has more reason to prevent someone from suffering than one has reason to enable them to have even more positive experiences than, than they're already having. And I think, yeah, many people find the idea of giving some priority to preventing suffering over making people's lives better to be to be to be an appealing notion and i think in some situations that could potentially lead you to prioritize improving lives over over extending them but i'll also pass over that one in the in the interest of time and also because it's more it's more philosophy which is a trickier area so yeah the third thing which i do want to talk about is the observation that saving someone's life is less valuable if that person's life is going to be unpleasant or, or, or very difficult and i think yeah to most people it's intuitive that it's more valuable to save the life of someone who feels that they're really flourishing and is super glad to be alive than it is to save the life of someone who thinks their life is barely worth living, uh, who, who uh, maybe doesn't even care that much whether, whether they live or die. And it, yeah, it could, it could be useful to use the numbers to make it a bit clearer how this might end up affecting your, your, your relative priorities here. If you imagine you know, people scoring their quality of life out of 10, that's kind of the standard subjective well-being scale. Uh, and let's say that we use the number three as the number at which someone is rating their existence as neutral with kind of the good and bad things in their life cancelling out. And that's kind of a typical answer for what people say would be the neutral point for them if they were scoring themselves. So if someone is going to report a quality of life of four out of 10 for the rest of their lives, then from a well-being adjusted life year, a well-being point of view, then it's equally valuable to them to prevent them from dying as it is to increase their well-being permanently by one point out of 10. That, that would be uh, from four to five in this case. On the other hand, if someone reports a quality of life of five out of 10, then from a well-being point of view, it's twice as valuable to save their life as to increase their well-being permanently by one point, in this case, from five to six, because the difference from three to five is twice as great as from five to six. So yeah, HLI notes that many people in very poor countries who you know, otherwise might die of malaria in the absence of additional anti-malarial bed nets have you know, unsurprisingly pretty challenging lives with, with plenty of hardship in them. And that, as I understand it, suggests that uh, to them, it's more likely to be cost-effective to make people's lives better uh, than to make them longer or, or less equal. I guess, so that's a very long lead-in. Uh, but uh, yeah, what do you and Gibble make of that sort of line of argument? I think the place I want to start is, I think this is a case where I feel most strongly that I would want to hear from the people themselves in low-income countries about this topic. And I think that's because 
I think if you if you kind of draw out this line of reasoning, it leads you to the conclusion that there is a very high proportion of people living in low-income countries who would choose death over continued living based on their self-reported life satisfaction. And that's a very uncomfortable conclusion, but maybe more importantly, one that is so counterintuitive that I would I would want to do, I, I feel the, the need to like follow up on it before accepting it at face value. And so that may be a somewhat minor point about like sort of where you draw the line on the scale. But still, you know, in this case, uh, yeah, I think the, the sort of maybe purely emotional urge I have is to say that doesn't quite seem like it could be right. Intellectually, I know it could be right. Therefore, I, I need to follow up on it because it's so inconsistent with my sort of starting point for what people would say. Yeah, it, it definitely can get uncomfortable or, or weird. Or, or maybe if you were serving people on the subjective well-being and you really said, you know, if you score yourself a two, we're going to take it that you actually mean that you would rather not be alive right now, then maybe people would reassess. Because an interesting thing is that people almost everywhere in, in the world, when you survey people, even people in serious poverty almost always say that they think their life is uh, better than not existing uh, and that they and they want to continue surviving and so on. I, you know, I've heard some philosophers say that uh, that kind of intuition that we all have about how great it is to continue existing might be a little bit suspicious because we might have evolved to have that attitude. We necessarily almost have to evolve to have that attitude, even if you know, our lives are very uh, unpleasant. And, and so that kind of bias might affect all of us. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not really too keen to go there. And I feel extremely uncomfortable. You know, if someone says that saving their life is really valuable, I'm, I'm inclined to take that at face value, whatever, like, and, and to trust that over some subjective well-beings survey. <laughs> Right. So, so, I mean, just because I, so I think that like that discomfort is a good starting point though not an ending point. And certainly something that we, we are very committed to internally is, uh, I don't know, one of our company values or whatever you want to call it is truth seeking. And what we mean by that is we're not going to, we're, we're going to have the hard conversations and keep digging to try to get the answer that, that is, you know, correct as far as we can, as we can see it. And so therefore, in this case, I would say I am very suspicious of philosophizing and reaching a conclusion that seems extremely counterintuitive and then running with it. But we're a place that wants to, you know, go deeper and embrace, be open to, you know, strange conclusions, or maybe I should say differently, like conclusions that seem strange to us today that will not seem strange to us in the future once we've spent more time with them and done more research on them. Anyhow, concretely, like if we had more time and capacity, we'd be going further because I think there's, you know, important questions here. Um, I think in our actual analysis, I think we've used like what's what's called the the deprivation approach. So, you know, we basically assume that, you know, if if you're alive, you're getting the life satisfaction points of, you know, sort of the representative person at your level. If you die, you lose those life satisfaction points. So not the sort of philosophical view that death is zero, but death loses those points. That's kind of how we've approached it. And then I think we... If I remember correctly, though, this may be wrong. I believe we sort of set the bar at a, an answer of 0 0.5 on life satisfaction points as sort of like where someone would choose to not be alive than be alive. Yeah, although this this model can feel like maybe it's going um, going wrong at the extremes. I think at least for myself, if let's say that I, I you know I have some pre existing uh, sense of the trade off that I would intuitively think that one should have between saving lives versus improving them, um, 
for you know people here in the UK, and then say that I got some uh, new. I read some new research suggesting that actually people like don't like their lives nearly as much as I thought, and the typical person who is actually struggling much more than I appreciated. I think you know on the margin that would shift me towards thinking, well, we should focus more on improving lives than we should on extending them. And, and there's maybe a question of like you know is this empirically a large issue? And there I'm not sure, but it's kind of conceptually I think it does. It's it's hard to get away from this making sense at some some level. Completely. I mean, I think that's completely right. And I think one of the things that HLI has done effectively is just ensure that this is on people's minds. I mean, I think without a doubt, like their work has caused us to engage with it more than we otherwise might have. Um, And sort of similar to some of the questions you were asking earlier, like why doesn't Institution X see that it should do whatever? Well, because it's kind of hard and sometimes you need an other organization to be pushing it in front of you. And I think that's really good that they've done that because it's clearly an important area uh, to your point that like we we want to learn more about and I think could eventually be, you know, more supportive of in the future. Yeah. You know, I thought that one possible uh, way that you and Happier Lives Institute could end up making different recommendations, I think, might be if they're thinking about, you know, immediate term impacts on people's reported subjective well-being. And I could imagine GiveWell thinking more in terms of economic development and thinking we want to have interventions that are going to cause people to, to become wealthier and less likely to be in poverty over the long term. And, you know, in part, we care about improving people's health because that enables them to be more productive and earn more and not be in such dire poverty later on when when they're adults and to like raise the next generation to be healthier and so on and and to just generally speed up the process of, of economic development is that an important factor in your recommendations that could cause you to recommend some things rather than others the way i think that that is actually mechanically flowing through our analysis is via those moral weights i think that when people are thinking about the value of say doubling someone's income for a single year i, I think in the background they are thinking of the types of considerations that you just mentioned. That is really the way that that plays out. You know, there is a part of, you know, thinking about our health interventions that we support. I shouldn't say our health interventions, but the health interventions that we support where it doesn't directly flow through to the model. But the fact that, you know, some of the these huge improvements in welfare over the last 50 years have come from large-scale global health programs to reduce mortality, that sort of angle on the problem, I think provides some additional credence to those interventions and their effectiveness, the type of you know funding that we're sort of most known for. But, you know, but all of this is sort of like, I don't know, it's like a very zoomed out philosophical level. I, I think it's all important to sort of like frame the argument in this way. But then also, I, I think you can boil it down into you know, some of the very concrete differences about how do we like literally interpret the evidence? How do we forecast or estimate the effect of strong minds, particular program? You know, what are your assumptions and beliefs about how that program would affect people's lives? I think the, the main point I would argue is that I, I, I think that carries, you know, 80% of the weight in the judgment that one would make, the judgments that we're trying to make. And much more of what we're doing is trying to ask the question, well, what are the state-of-the-art ways of reducing social desirability bias? And, you know, should the estimate be more 95% or more 5%? You know, that's, I think, where a lot of our energy is going and where it's one example of something that, you know, we'd be able to be tackling more effectively with more capacity. Okay, yeah, let's move along from subjective well-being and instead talk about 
Yeah, an, an entirely different critique, uh, which is related to what you were just saying. And this is kind of a, a critique that argues that what people focused on and how the very poor should be trying to do is to raise economic growth rates specifically. And that the best way to do that probably looks more like shaping economic policy in poor countries by funding think tanks or economic research or something than it does like funding basic global health interventions. This one was at least uh, as far as I know was most clearly and forcibly presented in the post growth and the case against randomista development by Hauke Hillebrand and, and John Halstead back in 2020. Of course we'll link to that and I think it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting read. I don't think we've ever kind of presented this view at any length on the show before so I, I feel a bit bad about my little monologues here but I've got to explain it in a little bit of, uh, of detail so people understand where it's coming from. I think the key claims from Hauker and, and John and economists who agree with, with this kind of line of reasoning like Lant Pritchett, they would say if we look at where people are dying young and not getting educated and generally struggling or maybe not flourishing nearly as much as they could, it seems like the single best predictor of that is low GDP per capita. Uh, you know, it's not everything, but it's a super important predictor of life expectancy and reported well-being uh, and so on. And basically, back in the 18th century, everywhere in the world was poor by today's standards. Almost everyone was living in poverty. But now there's a whole lot of countries that are, that are not poor, that are not struggling with these really easily solved preventable illnesses very much and so on. And the countries that are no longer poor basically have gotten there by figuring out how to produce a lot of goods and services per person. Uh, and as a result of that, you know, in a country like the UK, uh, very few children are severely malnourished just because there's a far greater abundance of resources. And how did this come about? So countries that are kind of now globally rich, like like the UK, got rich or got to the level of richness that they're at over decades and centuries by gradually becoming more economically productive so that, yeah, GDP per capita was high and people could earn decent salaries and they'll be very unlikely to go uh, severely malnourished. From a historical point of view, what actually kind of changed mechanically in so many countries that are now middle or high income so that they could have such radically higher living standards than people did hundreds of years ago? Basically, the people who buy into this critique will ask the question, you know, did it happen because of the sorts of health interventions that give well funds, like getting rid of malaria or deworming kids or all of the things that we were talking about earlier? Their answer would be that while those things probably made some, some difference, some small amount of difference, it's much more that they're not probably the major cause of development. And in many cases, you know, randomness to aid or charity or some of these health interventions didn't even exist during the primary development era because countries like the UK were getting rich in the 19th century in the first half of the 20th century before many of these problems even had been solved. Or we kind of had the methodological <laughs> approach to, to, to run randomized trials, or we certainly weren't doing it in this context very much. On top of that, you know, while GiveWell's charities probably do improve economic growth by improving health, they weren't chosen on the basis that they were optimized for that. So it would be kind of surprising if they really were the, the, the best way to do it. So in their mind, something else is causing countries to get rich, and it should be super important to try to figure out uh, what that is and, and try to stimulate it. And the people with this critique would, I, I think, by and large, they would say that you know, the likely top causes are more often related to changes in economic policy or the legal systems in a country or the physical infrastructure that's available, perhaps the culture, uh, the kinds of things that people do with their time. And those fundamentals kind of allowed productive businesses to be built in these countries over time. And thereby, you know, we found ways of dramatically improving how people are coordinated and the kinds of technologies that they were using. And if that's right, the most impactful interventions are likely to focus on that sort of thing, you know, doing think tanks to advocate for removing barriers to economic growth in a given location, for example. And they point out that if you can help raise the economic growth rate of a poor country for a couple of decades, that is going to be as useful as sending them enormous amounts of money in net present value terms. And you, we can just look historically and see that we get very uh, large de decreases in poverty when countries go through uh, serious economic growth spurts. Now, 
we might not know exactly the formula for economic growth that, that works everywhere, but uh, people with this critique would say, that, you know, we definitely have some ideas about approaches that are better than others. And policy in many poor countries has very obvious problems that, that are holding it back. So maybe we don't have, you know, the perfect recipe for economic growth that's going to be super successful everywhere. But we definitely have ways of preventing, you know, big unforced mistakes that are sending countries backwards or, or, or holding them back quite obviously. And that sort of mentality, by tackling the root causes of people or poor people's misery, that is, the country is being really poor and unproductive, that could be way more cost-effective than the sorts of person-by-person or hospital-by-hospital health interventions that GiveWell spends the most time thinking about. So, yeah, uh, I I apologize to any advocates of this view if I've oversimplified it, uh, just to to get it to cram it into a couple of minutes. But with that out of the way, yeah, at a very high level, what do you make of this sort of alternative lens on things? Yeah, I mean, I I think I want to start with... The, the parts of the critique that I take on board and maybe what I think we would ideally be doing differently, but then move into uh, the critiques of the critique that I have and where I think it maybe is is overstating its case. So I think the part of this critique that I, I really like and I've been thinking about recently is I don't think that we at GiveWell have put enough time into finding ways to explore the space of possibilities in this area, given its potential importance. And I think that that is something that I don't I don't regret historically. I'll tell you why. But I do think going forward, as we've grown and as we continue to grow, I'd like to be in a position where we've explored this enough to have a, a really great answer, which either is we're doing this in this area or we're not because of this you know pretty compelling reason. I think one of the things that explains GiveWell's history largely is that you know GiveWell did something very unique by going very deep on charitable interventions and understanding them very well. And a lot of how we've grown is by sticking to that core pretty intensively over a long period of time while we expand out in many of the ways that we've talked about today. And I think in some ways that is like our greatest institutional strength and maybe our greatest institutional weakness. We've been very focused on maintaining quality and rigor. And I think that has been very hard as we've grown a lot. I think we've been successful at it. And also it has made us a little bit more deliberate in the approach that we take to things. Um, and I think that's a fair characterization of, of GiveWell. And so when there have been ideas that are you know, more outside of our bailiwick, I think we've been just less effective at engaging with them. And I think that's something that we, just looking at the trajectory we've been on in the last three years and how we've expanded, when I look out five more years with our growth, I think we will be in a much better position to be engaging more seriously with these ideas. So maybe that's the sort of the, the institutional critique and what I think we could do differently, but I'm happy to move on and sort of engage more substantively with the ideas. Yeah, totally. Um, Maybe first, have you looked into any organizations whose focus is directly improving economic policy or uh, any organizations where you'd cash out their impact in terms of increases in GDP growth rates? Yeah, I mean, we've thought about this issue a little bit. You know, we've spoken a number of times with Lant Pritchett, who's a sort of leading academic proponent of these ideas. We've looked for, you know, specific organizations we could support that are focused on growth specifically. Um, And in those cases, I don't remember the details off the top of my head, but what I do remember is just not coming away from those cases feeling very optimistic about the results we'd get back or even the information we would gain to be able to learn. I I use this sort of a maturity spectrum before where certain things are more mature, certain things are less. This was definitely fairly shallow, fairly immature work, but we looked at that level and we're not super optimistic about the opportunities that we considered. Interesting. Okay. Is it maybe the case that there's just fewer organizations who perceive this as their this is their goal, this is their direct mission in in the developing world relative to how many health-related organizations there are? 
Maybe, but I think it's also a question of how you would attack this philanthropically. Like, I also wonder how neglected this space truly is. There's the World Bank, IMF. I mean, there's other institutions. There are, you know, the, the sort of Washington think tanks that are definitely focused on economic growth, academics who focus on, you know, macro economics and how we can improve low-income country conditions. And I think that, you know, some of these... Now I'm going to step out of my lane and, and sort of say my best impression of it, though I'm hoping that I'm not horribly wrong, is I think many of these ideas, you know, obviously and almost certainly contributed to economic growth to, to some extent. And also my understanding is that some of, the, some of the understanding of what led Southeast Asian countries to come out of poverty may be less clearly and directly tied to sort of standard... Uh, I don't know, broad principles of what makes free trade as like a pillar or the, um, you know, the Washington consensus, which was, I think the jury is out on how effective this sort of consensus of policy was. And so I think that what makes this more complicated to me, and again, I, I take the critique on board, uh, shallow investigation of an important idea is insufficient, but what, what makes the critique sort of sting less substantively is I think my story would be more, well, we do know some things that countries should, should really avoid. I think people are working on that. This is not a, a totally neglected space. And then there is some degree of disagreement among, I don't know, the, the different groups working on this about what the right approaches are. And, and some of the evidence for that is a disagreement about the extent to which past efforts have been effective and to what extent. And then I do think, again, this, this might be personally and temperamentally more than something else, but it strikes me that there's more of a risk of doing harm here, assuming that we do have the answer and pushing economic policy in a certain direction. Um, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity for unintended consequences of sort of pushing countries to do things that are different, even if we knew how to do it. But all that said, I, I do think the critique still stands because ideal GiveWell would have said, yeah, we spent a year on this because it's an important idea or we funded... I don't know, John and Helka to go look into this for a while to come back with better ideas. And I think the, the sort of like high level is insufficient for the weight of the argument. So in as much as you do disagree, what, what do you think is the biggest weakness with this line of argument? Are there any other ones that you, that you haven't mentioned? No, I, I think the, the three I mentioned are probably the ones that seem most salient to me, which are, I think the most important one is that it, it's unclear to me that there really is a consensus about what should be done. You know, there are some basic principles that should be followed. But when you look at the actual track record, I think it's more muddy. Number two, it's not neglected, as far as I know. You look at all the groups I mentioned before that are working on it. And then finally, the risk of harm seems high. I also think there are some more like detailed things. I remember, um, I think Alexander Berger actually raises this in the comments that you might not want to, when you're modeling the effect of GDP, you might want to look at log GDP instead of straight GDP. That is a big effect as you look at the big benefits of the, the very big numbers. I suspect those are smaller, but... Uh, in terms of their effect on the overall argument, but but important nonetheless. Yeah, just to clarify that last point, in, in some of the work on this, the benefit is reported in terms of kind of just net present dollars of GDP increased. But of course, you know, $1 is far more valuable if it goes to someone in extreme poverty. And as a country develops, fewer people are really poor. And so the value of each extra dollar of GDP generated goes down. And so you have to be, you have to use this logarithm of each person's income in order to get a more realistic translation of how that affects well-being. Uh, and that's uh, complicated. So that's like one adjustment that you would want to want to keep in mind. I guess, okay, I could imagine as I was describing this worldview, uh, some of this is both being like, yes, this is exactly it. Finally, someone's saying it. And also people being like, 
what is this absolute tosh <laughs> as if we as if we know the answer to uh, how to cause economic development and we can just go in and tell people like it's far more far more complicated than that um i'll try to represent what i've read uh from from this year i uh, do do my best and, and see what you think. I, I should say, kind of all all of the things that you mentioned are like somewhat addressed in in, in that blog post, although not to, not to full satisfaction of anyone. I, I don't imagine. I think they would say, at least in the cases of countries going backwards massively, you know, we we know things that countries shouldn't do that quite consistently lead them to have uh, economic disasters. I, you know, I suppose like causing hyperinflation is is one of them. And they might say, well, at least, you know, even if we don't know what the very best policy is, we at least know some things that are clearly bad and maybe more effort should be put into preventing those given how catastrophic they are. Yeah, do you want to react to that one? I guess off the cuff, they also seem like the countries that are hardest to influence. You know, what, if it's so well known, then why are they doing it? Well, they're probably doing it because leadership in the country does not have their population's best interest in mind. And that seems like quite a challenge for philanthropy to address. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, probably my my biggest concern with this line of argument, which like in general, I'm quite sympathetic to like you, I think there's a lot to it. But I feel often it's not appreciating that there's reasons that countries have bad policy. It's not just, like very often, it's not merely just a mistake. It's because of the political settlement within a country and kind of who has power. And coming in and telling people that they could be richer if they change their policy one way or another, the elites often don't want to implement those policies because they think it would weaken their position one way or another, or at least they're, they're, not, they're not suffering from, from the poverty. So there's kind of there's this whole other angle of political economy trying to understand how do countries end up with the policies that they that they do given how the political system works but that's why i think like ultimately yeah ultimately like where i think givewell has something to to add to this conversation but sort of many of the conversations we've had is to say well we, we can look at it from the ten thousand foot view or the fifty thousand foot view that's important because it can help us decide where to put our resources it's hard to figure out what's true from such a high level and so i think like to some extent what makes me really excited about our work why i think it's really cool is that we are trying to operate we're trying to be good about thinking at the 50,000 foot level, but then, you know, dig all the way in and ask, what can we do in this case about this problem? And so when I think about this specifically, I have absolutely no idea what to give money to, to improve economic growth in, you know, country A, B, or C, but I can imagine approximate step of finding people to spend time on this for a while and see what they come back with. And having watched a lot of different types of programs over many, many years, you know, from GiveWell, from Open Philanthropy, you know, more research often leads to new ideas. And so that's a really, you know, and so we're excited, I'm excited about our opportunity to support work like that because it can sort of bridge this gap between very abstract, you know, arguments where there's good arguments on both sides to find opportunities to actually move things forward. Yeah. So uh, another line of argument that I think advocates for this this view uh, might, might put forward is let's say, yes, there is controversy within development economics about exactly which policies are best. But to some extent, that's maybe overstated among lay people. And in fact, probably there is a lot of agreement among development economists. At least you might get like 70 or 80% on board with various different structural changes that you could uh, make to economies. And you know that that's kind of the level that you expect with social science of this type, where the questions are quite complicated. And yes, you know uh, those, those folks could end up being mistaken. As, as surely people have advocated for mistaken policies in the past, but it's better than chance. And if you're willing to take a risk, then uh, maybe maybe it is worth trying to uh, push at least some, some countries to try to go closer to the general consensus among, or at least to, to adopt the best practices that are agreed among a reasonable majority of experts in the in the space. 
I think that's probably like one of the ways that this would end up cashing out. You'd say, here's the policies that should be implemented. Here's the countries that should use the policies, then try to understand why they're not or who could, and then see what comes of it. And uh, I mean, I, I just don't know enough to really totally yeah, yeah engage on that substantively, but I think it makes sense as an area for investigation. They might also put forward the argument that, yes, there's the IMF and there's the World Bank and there's there's other uh, economic groups, but they're all somewhat uh, restricted, or at least what the kinds of behavior that they engage in is limited by the fact that these are multilateral international organizations run by technocrats. And like maybe, maybe there's space for a more advocacy-focused international organization that goes around to countries that say maybe are about to do hyperinflation and like campaigns against that or tries to raise awareness about it. Or there could be alternative models here that, that, that aren't getting funded. I'm not sure that they would make that argument but that's something that jumped into my head. Yeah, I mean, so I think I, I sort of like largely would say similar things to what I've said in, in response to this, which I know is maybe somewhat unsatisfying. And then I think maybe maybe the only additional point is that on the flip side, you know, you're just choosing to put money to that relative to, you know, all these other really great things that we were talking about earlier. And, you know, that's not a sufficient argument to say uh, malnutrition or water or kangaroo mother care is better. But, you know, certainly these programs are doing and have done a huge amount of good. And I think the the pressure that, that we face, the stress, the, the job is to ultimately be making that choice where there's limited resources, trying to increase the resources, but there's limited resources and then try to direct them where, you know, where they can do a lot of good. And there's, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's largely, unfortunately, um, you know, still too many places where it's, you know, easy to do a lot of good. Totally. Yeah, okay. I think we'll wrap up this section in a moment. But before we move on, there was a particular point in that article that I think really helped to explain what was motivating uh, people to to really prioritize uh, thinking in this way, which I I didn't want to let go. Yeah, the quote is, the American Economics Association has 20,000 members. Assume that there are twice as many economists globally, costing around $150,000 per year year each. So coming to uh, an annual bill of $6 billion. China's growth acceleration from 1977 onwards produced $14 trillion in net present value in cumulative economic output. Thus, if the only thing the economics profession as a whole achieved in 50 years was to increase by four percentage points the probability that the Chinese government shifted to this new economic strategy, then it would have had greater uh, benefits than spending that money on the graduation approach, which is this alternative, uh, like non-policy-focused uh, comparison that they use throughout and explain. Then they say... It's implausible that the economics profession had an influence this small, and there is in fact a lot of evidence for substantial development economics influence on Chinese economic thinking at the time. And they give some other examples where they think the economics profession has influenced countries to have big, big growth accelerations uh, through policy. Yeah, that, that number just really stood, stood out to me as I was reading it, uh, reading this article uh, again this week and uh, made me think, I would love to have more researchers looking at this, this kind of thing, even if it might be quite hard to find a specific uh, project to fund. Yeah, I guess I'm not, I'm not totally sure what to make of that comparison. Like, yes, the the sort of like discovery of of basic principles of economics and uh, their acceptance has had a huge effect. I mean, the same is true for you could say something similar about like I don't know basic discoveries in medical science. And then I'm just like, I don't quite know what to do with that in terms of making a decision about what deserves you know further further funding. Totally. Okay, so we're nearly at the end here. I guess I think uh, people who have been really interested in this conversation and uh, you know have some flexibility in their career should think about working uh, working at GiveWell if they find these issues uh, really interesting. Yeah, can you just remind us of what sort of I guess by the time this interview comes out, the specific vacancies that you're advertising now might be gone, but kind of what roles are you trying to fill in in, in general this year and next year? Yeah, so GiveWell is broken up into three teams: researchers who are trying to figure out where to direct money outreachers, outreach people who are trying to increase the amount of money we can direct, 
And then folks in operations who are supporting the organization's functioning, we're trying to build all three areas. In research, we're hiring researchers across the board from senior researchers who are intellectual leaders. They're the people who are, you know, they, they would be someone who I would go to and say, we really need to look into this growth case. What, what could we do and what do we think? A senior researcher would just take on that project and try to explore it, understand it. The conclusion could be, this is not promising and here's why, or the conclusion could be, we should give money here and here's why. But they, those senior researchers do everything from broad exploration to going deeper on questions like the evidence for malnutrition, scoping studies to help us learn more and everything in between. We are also hiring researchers who are, that those senior researchers tend to be, you know, I don't know, fairly far into their careers, I guess, maybe eight or 10 years or more, but are also hiring more entry-level researchers and people earlier in their career who can come in, support that work. And then our hope is develop over time to take on more responsibility. On the, uh, on the outreach side, the goal is just to raise more money. And that has various components, but really one of the largest ones is understanding GiveWell's research well enough that you can be an effective advocate in conversation with donors. When a large proportion of the funds we raise come from people giving a million dollars or more every year. And therefore, a lot of what we're doing is giving them confidence that we've done a good job. And often that comes from direct conversation with us, you know, even though there is so much information on our website. And so we're aiming to um, hire a larger team that can go even further in those conversations with very large donors. You know, there's other things we're doing too, but that's kind of the top goal. And then our operations team is very small for an organization our size. And there's a lot that we want to um, you know, do there. I think earlier I mentioned doing a better job investing our assets. We're not looking for people who have investment expertise. That's not what we need, um, but it's generalists who can bring common sense, um, an attitude of getting things done to the team because you know we expect to grow a fair amount into the future and we wanna support our staff, support the organization and its growth so we can you know, continue to be effective going forward. Yeah. I guess um, what what sort of distinctive skills or attitudes might make someone uh, a good fit for you know each of those different different categories? Well, I think I think I'll just talk. Maybe I'll mention research first, but then talk holistically about broad categories or broad qualities. I think in research, GiveWell sits at some midpoint between you know very practically minded, practically oriented organizations. You know, sometimes I think of like the prototypical management consulting firm or something who are, you know, doing something, trying to advise clients directly on what to do in their business. On the other end of the spectrum, maybe an academic doing deep, abstract research. You know, we're, we're, we're trying to find people who combine maybe those two skills. So that's both an ability to, an inclination towards academic style research with a practical orientation that wants to put that research to work. This is unusually hard to find. I think that's because people who really like getting all the way into the details often want to keep going. And people who like getting things done often have no patience for the details. And the people who've been most successful um, for us who are really looking for bring those two abilities together to help us make great decisions. And then I think there's just some other basic characteristics that are somewhat unusual, but make someone successful at GiveWell. And probably the two most important ones are maybe in a very conventional way, someone who is really great at moving things ahead. I think that often, you know, people can get stuck doing too much analysis or trying to find the perfect answer. And, you know, often an imperfect answer is actually good enough for our needs in a domain and people who have that inclination towards, I check this off, I want to do the next thing while having everything else are, are really great. 
And then I think also importantly, people are just excited to share their work and get feedback. You know, a lot of folks say, answer this question, they want to sit in a corner for three months and bring back the A plus paper and that does not work. But people who are excited to say, I think this, and this is how I could be wrong and please give me feedback so I can improve. I mean, wow, those people are hard to find, but amazing. And if this sounds like you, then you should definitely come to GiveWell. Yeah. I'm tempted to ask what's distinctive culturally about GiveWell, but I think it kind of shines through through, through the entire conversation. Um, it's, it's, it's all of these all of these things of wanting to quantify things. Uh, I, I guess, do, do people in general have conversations at GiveWell that sound like this interview? Yeah, I think uh, I think a fair amount. So, I mean, the things that are obvious are, you know, we're, we're into transparency. We're into trying to maximize the impact of our work and quantifying things. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. I think it's like something that is maybe not so evident from the outside that people say when they arrive is that, I don't know how this will sound, but people at GiveWell are very kind and considerate. And I think that's really important to me. You know, I've, I've worked in other places and seen a lot of places where a focus on quantification and transparency and truth-seeking can lead to a willingness to be mean. And I just, you know, I, I don't think that's good. And, you know, we we fight back against that, you know, both with trying to be considerate of others internally, considerate of the organizations that we are considering for funding and the people that they're ultimately benefiting. And I think that that is a very important counterweight to this like collection of characteristics that often go together, which is maximize, get the truth and just be open about what you think. And so, you know, we fight back against that a little bit with that um, focus on consideration. Has that been a very conscious thing from the beginning, maybe to to try to push for kindness and make that an important hiring criteria? Or is it something else? It's something else. It, it happened organically. And I think I noticed it when we would ask when, when people join, we, we check in with them after six weeks and someone sits down and asks them a series of questions. And one of them is like, what were you surprised about? Or what do you like most? And they would often say, I don't know, the kindness and the consideration that they receive from their colleagues. And um, I don't know exactly why that happened, but I'm very glad that it did. And now it is, it's not a hiring criterion because there's absolutely no way I think we could realist, like no one wants to hire a jerk and there's no way we could assess that. <laughs> if someone, if we take referrals and someone's a jerk, we won't hire them, but it doesn't come up. But instead, it's just a big part of the message that we're trying to send along the way. And I think we've done a good job maintaining our, our commitment to that value as we've grown. Yeah, only half the audience of the show is in the US. Are you able to sponsor visas for people from outside the US? Yes, we are for, for many roles, not for all roles. And we also have folks who um, are based outside of the US. So we have um, a couple of people in London uh, or in England outside of London and, and you know, generally think we can employ people outside of the US as long as they're you know, within maybe the US, the, the US Pacific to the uh, European time zone. As it gets further afield, we're not sure we can actually make the time zone shift work. I see. So the time zones for Australia are a little bit challenging, but yeah. I should say uh, you're based in San Francisco. We didn't mention that earlier, um, but it's great. So you're hiring remote workers in, the, in these other places now. And I suppose that involves visiting the US uh, periodically, but uh, day to day you, you work from Europe, say. Our formal headquarters are in Oakland, California, but only about a third of staff are now based in the Bay Area because we hired aggressively throughout the pandemic and we're hiring remotely. And so... Um, yeah, I mean, we're very happy to hire folks outside of the Bay. Many people are based outside the Bay. And then we encourage people to come visit us quarterly uh, during a week that everyone comes to the office, but that's not mandatory. And some folks have chosen not to come and, and that's okay too. So yeah, we, we feel like we can successfully employ people um, you know, pretty much anywhere, though the further you get out of the outside of the US time zones, I think the more difficult the experience is because you spend more time 
without as many coworkers around uh, around virtually, I guess. So yeah, you can work from uh, Australia so long as you're also a vampire. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's amazing. I had no idea that Gitwell had transitioned from because I, I, I think years ago almost everyone was uh, was local, but now it sounds like it's almost almost remote first, or a majority of people are remote. It's basically remote first. Yeah, I mean, um, it's funny. I remember as late as you know 2019, so right before COVID hit, having folks who joined remotely and, and really pushing them hard to move and you know, talking about all the downsides of, of them being remote. And I'm sure there are some costs, but I think that, yeah, it was just a mistake. And in some ways, you know, a silver lining of the last few years is that we've just leaned into being remote first or remote mostly, I don't know what to call it. And it's worked really well. Uh, and I'm glad that we've been able to hire people from all over because it's massively increased the pool of candidates that are open to working for us. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's one of the you know, one of the positive effects COVID has had. I, I got to say, I, I think I was skeptical early on the pandemic that uh, the remote work thing w- would stick. I figured now we probably had good reasons to require everyone to be present. And I mean, there's, certainly there are big benefits to to being local as well. But there's also big benefits to to allowing uh, remote work, and it's yeah, fantastic that it's working for you because it means such a larger fraction of people can potentially apply. Yeah, exactly. I guess yeah, pushing on from careers. Yeah, if. People in the audience want to support any of the programs you've talked about today financially. Um, can they generally do that, or do these programs typically not accept uh, in individual donors? The recommendation that we make to donors is you can either give to our top charities fund or our all grants fund. Top charities is going to the set of you know very small set of organizations that meet sort of high confidence and high impact. The all grants fund will support opportunities like the ones we discussed today. And you can see a list of all the things we've supported in the past. You, you certainly could support these organizations directly if you wanted to. We are happy with the level of support we have provided those specific organizations to date and will reassess further support in the future. But supporting the All Grants Fund would be the way to support that ongoing work and you know new opportunities that is that are analogous to those ones that we discussed today. Yeah. Uh, do you want to make just make a quick pitch to people to, to check out the GiveWell website and consider donating money to, to your recommendations? Yeah, uh, we are finding far more opportunities to help people across all of these programs, health, livelihood improvement, things like malnutrition and water than we ever have before. And that means that more funding means more people will be helped. So you can, on our website, see the things we've supported, the things we currently recommend, and all the underlying research behind it. So uh, you can decide whether or not, hopefully that you do agree with the conclusions that we're reaching. Fantastic. All right. Yeah, we should uh, wrap up and let, let you get back to normal work. But I guess a final question I have is, um, what do you do to unwind? What, what do you do for fun? Who's the, who's the man behind the, the cost-benefit analysis spreadsheet? What do I do for fun? Well, you know, one thing I like doing is uh, kind of learning new sports or physical activities that I haven't done in a long time. So I learned how to ski a few months ago, but unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, I fell and got hurt. And so I'm sort of recovering from that. Um, so I'm, I'm putting that whole activity of you know, athletics is sort of on pause for a bit, but I have um, I have four young kids and sometimes, often that's not unwinding, that requires a lot of attention, <laughs> um, but they are a lot of fun. And I think that not only, you know, are they great to talk to and hang out with, but um, they often hold up a great mirror to me about, and I see myself in them and I've learned sort of more from them than I think I have in a long time. And so it's been a very, you know, not only enjoyable, but very like, and, and fulfilling in a certain way, but also very informative experience. Because I'm like, oh my God, but you know, my, my, my kids right now are doing something called a readathon where there's like a competition to see who can read the most 
minutes at their school and they're so anxious about winning. And when you see someone else being anxious about some ridiculous goal like that, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I do that sometimes. What a, oh man, thank you for helping me see how wrong I was. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm planning well, for Lisa, ho- hoping to have kids uh, kids as well before too long. That's great, Rob. I suppose I, I had to. I, I spent a little while asking people, um, yeah, w- were they happy w- when they had kids or not? People mostly don't say that they regretted it. <laughs> I guess I guess it sounds like you haven't regretted it. I think it would be a hard it would be a hard thing to say, but yeah. uh, I, I also you know feel very. I mean, we we have four kids, so we just kept going, and so we, you know did that very intentionally, and are very excited about it. And um, yeah, I, I'm very happy. I actually remember after my, my first daughter was born, I was hanging out with a couple of coworkers. And I remember when I think back on those times, I remember them as being incredibly hard, like the first three months of a new baby and we weren't sleeping and hmm. she was crying. But I, I also remember just being out with them and them saying, like, Ellie, you seem so much happier than you used to be. That's so strange. Hmm. And it's weird because I can't access that memory of my past subjective <laughs> well-being, but I'm glad that I have this objective data point from outside of me to remind me what it was actually like. Yeah, did you have a sense of what what changed in your mentality, or is it just like adding more more balance to your life, perhaps? I think it probably has added more balance to my life. You know, it's um, I, you know, find myself often, as some people might, stressed about work, and I I don't feel that same way about my family. I don't know exactly why, but it's this um, very enjoyable, very fun opportunity to do a lot of things that are creative, learn new things, learn about myself, learn about them. There, there are downsides to always having people around that you like, but also it's nice to have people around that I like. And um, they're fun to, you know, my, my wife and my kids are just always here. And um, I, I, I think that's really nice. And it added something. Uh, it has added. I hope it continues to add something really meaningful to my life. Random question. Did, did having kids affect how much hearing about you know, the horrible conditions that many people are growing up in that kind of, uh, could, you know, people, you know, having club foot and not being treated or suffering from malnutrition ongoing. Did, did it make it feel at all more, more visceral? Uh, I guess perhaps because you could, you know, imagine this happening to your own kid. I think it did. And also it didn't really change the way I relate to my work on a day-to-day basis. I definitely have had the experience of going to the pharmacy and getting amoxicillin when one of my kids was sick and then knowing that there are countries where like you couldn't get amoxicillin for your child. And, you know, when I, when I take a moment to pause and which I, which I don't do enough, but say, wow, like that's what I'm working on. And and I think in many ways, you know, not exactly, but that's what you're working on. That's what we're trying to do. It does help me connect to the work more to sort of imagine it as being helpful to someone like my children you know, whom I feel like obviously a great deal of love for to, to think about it. Yeah, it has made it in some ways like easier to, to feel strong emotion when I, you know, pause and, and try to make myself do that, which I think is, is good and helpful. My guest today has been Ellie Hassenfeld. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Ellie. Thank you, Rob. This was awesome. If you head to givewell.org slash jobs, you'll find that they're hiring for all sorts of positions just now, including research associates, donor relations associates, and project managers, to name a couple. And if you like that episode, you might want to go back and listen to episode 129, Dr. James Dabindurana on the state of the art in malaria control and elimination, and episode 124, Karen Levy on fads and misaligned incentives in global development and scaling deworming to reach hundreds of millions. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. 
Audio mastering and technical editing by Simon Monsua and Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon. Thank you.